I'm speaking poorly today. Uh, take a look, my friends. Uh, Morgana is something I can easily recommend. Uh, Lime River Rose or, of course, Sour Morgana right there at the top of the page. Take a look, my friends. And uh, don't forget to use the coupon code BRAINS for 14% off. Brains. Exactly right, D. Uh, Miss, uh, we'll wait for, well, actually, I don't know. James, do you have your audio set up yet? Or Oh, there we go. It is James and Wendy. How you doing? Oh, shit. Wendy K. Nice to see you guys. Welcome. Hello. How are you doing? Not too bad. How are you? Nice. Doing really good. So Super bright. bright. Hit it <laughs> yeah. There you go. Welcome, guys. Good to see you. <laughs> we are so good at this. There we go. We're all super pro at this. You can tell. No, for real. <laughs> That's it. You don't have the headphones and everything. How, how could you? Welcome, guys. How are you doing? Doing good. Good to see you. Uh, Bug Lady, how, how shall we call you? Miss Suzanne Wainwright Evans is your real name. Sometimes you call yourself Bug Lady Consulting. What do you like to be? Uh, what do you like to be called, basically? Well, people have been calling me Bug Lady since high school, so cool. Bug Lady works. Um, or Suzanne, just don't call me Susan. We will definitely not call you Susan or Suzanne or I don't know. I was trying to think of some other stupid name uh, here, by the way, is your website, Bug Lady Consulting. By the way, this website is spectacular. Ladies and gentlemen, go take a look. She has a ton of articles available. Uh, I have either not seen it recently or didn't look recently because I was blown away, honestly, this afternoon, how much stuff is on here. So take a look, my friends, tons and tons of stuff. What is IPM? A lot of people don't have any idea. How do I say this? What integrated pest management? We were joking about it the other day. Uh, she's also a spectacular photographer. Hopefully, we'll get into that a little bit. But, ladies and gentlemen, take a look at uh, bugladyconsulting.com. Uh, the first thing I was going to ask you is a simple question What's your favorite bug? My favorite insect, um, and it has been for a few years, aphids. I absolutely love aphids. Why do you love aphids? Because most of the rest of us hate aphids. And at the sound of the word aphid, our skin crawls. Um, well, I mean, just, I don't know. I think they're pretty. Um, I also think they're, um, how they've adapted to survive and basically outsmart humans for just being bags of water with straws is pretty epic um, because you almost kind of have to learn to live with them in a way you're not going to eradicate them. Um, so I think it's very interesting evolutionarily um, how they've developed to survive. The fact that they don't have to mate to have babies um, and that basically most of the year in um, cooler climates, and I say cooler in northern United States, uh, you know, they're the females are having clones of themselves um, and this adaptation to not even need males. So all you have to do is get one into your facility and, you know, you're off to the races. Um, and I just think they're really pretty to photograph. I love photographing them. Hmm. Were the characters of the Borg on Star Trek based on aphids, do you think? Or because I've, I've joked about that before, that like they, they assimilate, essentially, they don't integrate. Well, I would put the, them more like ants or in the hymenopter group of social insects that have that like hive mind. And that's the, why they call it the hive mind, because of like bees, uh, wasp and ants, the social insects all work together as a unit. Aphids are more like just all I have to do is out survive my sister and I can stay alive, you know, either by dropping off the plant or escaping from a parasite or things. They don't work together necessarily as a unit. But they are, I suppose there are different interpretations. Are they slaves or are they farmed or however, they're basically taken care of by ants, right? They uh, ants. Will Not all species. Them. That's kind of a, you know, people, 
people like to to make that sound bigger in a way that is. I mean, it's an important thing, but not all ants farm aphids and not all aphids are farmed. Um, it does happen sometimes, but not always. I mean, when we're saying that we're veering wildly off track, I guess, for what I was. Well, the discussion is where we take it, essentially. But uh, uh, six or seven, six, uh, seven years. I don't remember how many years ago I got root aphids. And uh, as far as I know, there were no. Uh, how do I say this? I literally wasn't here. Someone else was taking care of my garden, but the person that was taking care of their garden was actually quite assiduous about not getting anything else on them. They weren't a gardener or anything else. And the most likely solution, based on what people talked to about this, here's uh, the Based on uh, talking to, well, talking to a variety of people is that essentially the the, uh, uh, root aphids were brought in by ants from I can't remember what plant I had. Literally, basically, my grow is in the in the basement, essentially, and uh, the the most affected area was the veg area, or the most directly affected. Do you think that's plausible at all? Do you think that that's what happened? That basically ants brought in my root aphids, or did something else just bring the root aphids in? Uh, right here, state do you live in? Well, I mean, this you don't have to, but I mean, this is what you have to look. And does that um, aphid exist outside your door? See, it was a root aphid, so I didn't know. Nothing else outdoors really seemed to suffer from it, but uh, yeah, I didn't have any cannabis or anything else outside. Well, so see, this is the thing that, I mean, it's really easy to blame other things other than sanitation practices on why you have pest issues. Um, I'm going to, there's only been one situation with rice root aphid, because that's how people clump this root aphid thing together. That's like saying, you know, Volkswagens. There's lots of Volkswagens. There's lots of root aphid species. The one in particular that we see in cannabis is the rice root aphid, um, which is a pest I've dealt with since the 90s. I have seen it in other crops, but um, it's not of huge economic importance. It's kind of a nuisance thing. Uh, And unless you have one of its alternate host crops right out your door, uh, that had it, I would say the chances are very slim. I've only had, one, like I said, one situation that was in Homestead, Florida. And uh, because we know this is in Florida um, on a few uh, tropical ornamentals, and this particular facility was six feet away from a tropical ornamental nursery, and it was a shade house. So more likely they blew in than the ants carried them over. I just, and the thing is, is with root aphids, people are like, oh my gosh, where'd they come from? There's millions of them. They've been there for quite a while building their population. It's typically only when you go into flower do people realize they have them because that's when they are um, basically start exiting the plant because once the plant goes to flower, the aphids realizing the plant's dying and we need to rehome ourselves. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't go with that. I think it came in on genetics because I've seen people, I've been to enough. Come in on genetics. Can't, well, okay. I can't promise. No, it, I can't promise that it didn't come in on genetics, but it might've come in, let's say literally on a dog because the person. Yeah, that was the dog. Yeah. You didn't change what you worked on the outdoor garden. Like people think I'm crazy for changing and showering before I work on my indoor garden. But I, you, I, I do mushroom cultures and stuff too. So you, sanitary, like it's just sanitary reasons. Like you just got to kind of stay clean at least if you want to try to avoid it. I mean, it's all, it's inevitable. You're going to end up with bugs at some time, you know, but you can do the best practices to try to prevent it. 
You know what? That's a question for you, uh, uh, bug lady, Suzanne. Uh, is uh, how do I say this? Uh, uh, I've said before on the show. I've said you know before in general that if you have not experienced one of the many you know massive bugs that we talk about, or at least the, the uh, consequential bugs we talk about, spider mites, root aphids, uh, leaf aphids, whatever, three ups, on and on and on. If you've never experienced them before. You're going to. It's 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 going to be part of your grow at some point. But then there are people that always say, no, 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 no. My cultural practices are so good. I don't take clones. My uh, quarantine is so good. Is it possible that there are some people that literally will avoid bugs their whole life? Or is that just unrealistic? I think that's unrealistic because if, I mean, I just look at how many people contact me every day with all their problems and how many high-end facilities I go to. Um, and again, I work outside of, you know, cannabis. I work, um, you know, tropical ornamentals, other vertical uh, vegetable farming systems and things like that. And I mean, it's almost inevitable, inevitable, you're going to end up with something, um, even with all the biosecurity that can be put in place. Uh, fair enough. Uh, what was I going to say? I actually was going to take a, uh, I say this, a, a veer off that first question. Is there a bug that actually gives you palpitations or gives you uh, 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 your least favorite bug in some sense? Hmm. I mean, nothing like creeps or freaks me out. I mean, when freak me out, make me touch a package of ricotta cheese. <laughs> that's that's where my line is drawn. Why do you have this? Why do you have the specific experience of touching a package? It's of so weird. I, I just, I'm so skeeved out by ricotta cheese. I, I have some stuff like that, though. I can't yeah. do mayonnaise at all. I'll throw up. eyes at it, Suzanne. Would you touch it then? What'd you say? If you took the eyes and the eyes on there. Oh, God, that'd be tempting if I had to re if they were on the package, I could remove the googly eyes, but if the googly eyes were actually Touching the cheese? No, I would leave the googly eyes. That was my immediate vision. Was basically a bunch of googly eyes, but in the ricotta cheese. Oh. <laughs> so hold on, I got a question. Why? Why insects? Why bugs? Like what? What? Why did your passion go there? So my earliest memories that I remember was climbing a tree when I was probably in. Oh gosh, it had to have been fifth, sixth fourth grade around then and seeing what I know now were bark lice. And I just sat in that tree forever, just staring at these bark lice. I found them so fascinating. And I, I swear it was like an awakening in my brain. Um, and my mom will tell you, I mean, every, I was just into the bugs and I just knew I wanted to work with bugs. And she said she would find worms in my pants pockets and I was forever bringing bugs home. I had insects in jars forever. Um, and I mean, I, I loved insects, but I also, as I got older and got into high school, become, became very more environmentally aware. And I really wanted to be part of the solution from an environmental standpoint, watching everything that had happened in Florida with the Everglades and the sugarcane industry and all the pollution and fertilizers and pesticides. So I really wanted to go into a, a career path where I could help be part of the solution. And, um, and it was not an easy road. And um, I, I mean, I, I took me applying to the University of Florida four times before I got in. Um, I was not just some like smart kid. I, did, I graduated high school with a 2.4. Um, I had to work my ass off to get there. And I finally got accepted. And once I got into the entomology program and everything, it was just like, I was just 
it was just so easy. It was just natural for me. And I loved it. I, I, I loved school. I want to go back and take more classes, but you know, work keeps me busy, but yeah, I just always been into insects. And my husband says, I'm very lucky because he's one of the few people he knows that knew what they wanted to do, went out and did it. What is it about them that you like? Do you know? Is it is it just the oddity of them, or is it uh, because we odd. so often see them? Well, we so often see them as some kind of a foreign, strange thing, right? I was, in fact, I was going to ask you actually one of the last questions: like, bugs. are we in symbiosis or in competition with bugs? Because I think a lot of times we think that we're basically in competition with them, right? Um, I mean, I guess you could could look at it that way, um, but at the same time, without them, we're gone. We're we're dead. We need them for pollination, waste removal. I mean, they're such a critical part of the ecology. And the thing is, is is in our society, because of advertising, we are taught to be fearful of them. We are taught that if you have insects in your house, you're gross or dirty, which is not necessarily true. I mean, most kids are really into insects and then they learn to be fearful from their parents or from marketing and advertising. And we as a society have decided that, you know, spraying pesticides all around our house is more important than, you know, picking up a spider and taking it outside. I mean, it's, it's a societal thing here is our phobia. Um, Cause again, kids love bugs. I uh, I don't remember when this was. This was maybe like a six months or a year ago or something. But I was at this really cool. I don't know if you guys. You probably have hardware stores like this where you live. Because uh, 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 Bug Lady lives in this really cool uh, uh, complex. I don't know if she wants to talk about it. But anyway, uh, Park Rose Hardware, and they it's one of those old school places where you know they have really good customer service and everything. And so I was waiting to basically ask the gardening person some kind of a question about a bottle. I think I was buying. No, I was buying a spray bottle. I was buying a Chapin sprayer, and I literally wanted to buy it because I wanted to keep my uh, soil surface wet basically kind of like uh, to i don't know to basically foster that kind of mulch layer and everything else and actually to foster sort of an active decomposition critters and bugs and everything and you know i wasn't going to ask them about all that but i was just going to ask them about the the nozzle and the older man that was standing uh, basically in front of me talking to the, the the clerk person literally was asking something quite the opposite he was asking me give it give me the deadliest spray you have that person was like what do you have Everything. I want to kill everything around my house. Everything. I want nothing. He said, he even said, he said, I don't want anything alive around my house. I just almost friggin' put my head in my hands. You know, just, I don't know. It was a sad moment a little bit, but I mean, it's probably a pretty normal That's- interaction for those people, right? That is because so when I was in college, um, I had to pay my own way through school. And so I worked full time during the day and went to school at night at UF. And so I took jobs in the industry, which is what really helped me kind of make me a better consultant because I've had so many different jobs in the industry. And for a while I worked um, in a garden center. And, you know, I would be the person that I stood on the chemical aisles on the weekends and the homeowners would come in and say, I have this problem. How do I fix it? And da, da, da. And that was very, very, very common, especially back in the 90s, um, where people just wanted to nuke everything in their house. They were setting off, you know, bombs in their house because they wanted to kill all the insects in their house. They wanted to spray around the foundation of their house, not even thinking, you know, in Florida about how that just goes right into the water table because the water table is so high down there. It's just nobody thinks about that stuff. Uh, is it true that we've been here? I've been hearing for a few years now, and I guess I can look it up. And so we'll see if there's any articles. I don't know if it's true or not. We're going to ask you uh, that there's been a, ma- a massive uh, insect die off, I guess. for lack Yes, of- that is absolutely yeah. true. That is well documented. I actually, for a few years, um, there is actually a pollinator conference uh, that all the 
pollinator researchers go to. And for a few years, I would go to that because even though I don't work in pollinators, I want to understand what's going on. It was just too depressing. I literally felt I needed therapy to Hmm. deal with how depressed I was after those meetings because of showing what was happening. I had to stop going to those meetings because it was just way too depressing. Um, Is it from pesticide and just sort of regular agricultural practices or what? Not as much as you would think. Um, Actually, um, I mean, you could say agriculture in the sense of habitat loss, but it has a lot to do with urban sprawl and, you know, lawns and also um, a lot of right-of-way stuff where, I mean, yeah, we've had these big farm fields, but, you know, in 60s, 70s, and even early 80s, you had all the milkweed on the sides of the roads and chicory and wildflowers and all that. Now everything gets round up or killed. And so we don't no, have... No, you see these... left is mustard. You actually see the freaking uh, the yellow mustard. They, so they kill everything and the yellow mustard comes back and kills the rest, right? Yeah. So, so it's, 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 what, it's a couple of things and it's, it's a big pie. You kind of have to think about, you can't blame it on one thing, but habitat loss is one. Another, uh, part of the problem, climate change, uh, which, you know, people can deny it or not, but as scientists, we know it's happening. Um, that's part of it. Pesticides are a part of it, but right now, even if, you know, this whole big ban, the neonic stuff, even if you hundred percent ban neonics in this country, it is not going to solve the pollinator issue. Um, so it's, it's this, you know, and for honeybees, which are not native, you know, they're technically an invasive species, you know, we have the varilla mites and these other pathogens they're dealing with, um, which is not helping them. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's a combination and fungicides actually play a part in this too, not just insecticides. So it's, it's a very complicated picture, but unfortunately we as humans who are so busy with their lives. It's too complicated an issue for people to wrap their brains around everything. So it's easy just to point the finger at, you know, it's neonics and it's Monsanto. They're the bad people. Now, you know, they're a slice of it, but they're not the whole pie. And there's a lot of things we have to look at uh, for this uh, mass extinction. Is there anything that uh, growers, both indoors and outdoors, can do about this situation or at least not contribute to the I don't know. Well, we just said that it's a, a, a few problems that we can't control, like climate change. But I don't know. How do I say this? Is, is there anything that a grower can do to assist in any in any way? Well, I don't know if like an indoor grow is going to do much. But, you know, for me here personally, you know, we have seven acres of land and we've taken about the two front acres of our property, which when we moved in was pristine mowed turf grass. And now it's a wildflower meadow. Mm-hmm. And we have I've been putting wildflower seeds out there. We've been fighting invasives, um, but providing it as a, you know, an ecological habitat. And the one thing we've really seen, um, if you've seen any of my firefly photography, is we've really had a huge increase in the number of fireflies on our property, which are for the eastern part of the United States are a very important part of the ecology because the, the larvae live in the soil most of the year. They're predatory on things like uh, slugs and other insects. And, you know, to see their population come back where we provided this habitat is super duper rewarding for me. So I think that thinking about, um, you know, having more of an ecology in your yard than a monoculture. And unfortunately, agriculture is generally a monoculture. Well, I was going to say, so like one of the things that everybody can do, what I'm hearing is that everybody can plant more plants. 
and specifically not necessarily crops that you're going to be um, harvesting and utilizing, but just plant, plant pretty flowers, plant things that bugs are going to, you know, insects are going to go to and, you know, help their populations. Especially stuff that's right for your area, not stuff you necessarily want, but what's right for your ecology. Um, and there are a few good websites um, that you can look that kind of stuff up. But one of our friends, um, she was going to do some plantings at an outdoor cannabis facility. And she sent me the list of the, the seeds that she was told from the seed company. But I looked at it and a lot of the species were northeastern United States natives. And I understand the ecology is totally screwed up at this point. I mean, this whole idea of only plant natives. Well, the soil's not what it was before, you know, Europeans got here. The temperatures aren't the same. Nothing's the same. But still, you want to try to use stuff that has been indigenous to your area for quite a while. My cats love those treats, I have to say. <laughs> Don't make that noise. Don't let the cats hear that noise because they will come. Uh... So. He's a troublemaker, as he knows. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, speaking of uh, people denying global warming or anything else, it's kind of a weird situation, too, because uh, every poll that I see now, actually, the majority of the public basically actually is fairly well on board, basically, with the idea of a global warming and climate change, human cause and everything else. The only group that's lagging are politicians. So I guess politicians, they have a reason that probably involves their paycheck that that is you know, to not recognize what's in front of them. I don't know. They're too busy ruining it on private jets, bro. They don't give a fuck. That's true, too. You know what? We should actually say hello to a couple of friends before I ask you about bro science. No actual connection to these guys, but I mean, they're bros, but we're not. Yeah, that was a bad introduction. Flora and Coach, what's going on? <laughs> just a couple yo, of yo. Uh, I'm not calling you. I'm not calling you. Cats. Don't worry. What's, uh, what's just, up chilling. just chilling. Uh, Finally got my freaking, my Garricon and my cordyceps and the massive amount. Oh, and I ordered uh, the tincture too. Man, that stuff tastes awful. It does. It's know. not the best. It, it's, the cordyceps it's, it's is not the best. I'll fucking. Yeah. Fucking awful say, tasting. It's, it's, it's pretty gross. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely <laughs> worse tasting things, but it's it's right up there. I, I agree. Have you, uh, have you tried putting that into any type of drink? Yeah. Coffee, tea. I just honestly, the faster you get it down, the better. <laughs> like. You know, so just to have something afterwards. Do you put it under your tongue or do you try to swallow it? Swallow it, yeah. If you put it under your tongue, if you put it under your tongue, you would have to deal with it way longer and that taste is just going to get worse. But I will say it will hit your bloodstream faster. Probably. It's sublingual, yeah. I mean, it's just cordyceps. It's not crack. (laughs) It's not crack. It's not crack. No, it's... it's, it's, It's not cordyceps. Uh, yeah, super, super excited about the Garicon because that's supposed to be uh, just like a, an extremely amazing um, uh, for health benefits, you know. So um, we'll see. I'll, I'll let you know we'll in see. about a month. Uh, like I, I've said this before, I was skeptical until I tried it and then I gave it, you know, because you're so actually oh, yeah, yeah. You're pretty consistent. Definitely like the, I noticed the, although the one that you recommended to me, the first one here, the reach the the multi-species blend, yeah, amazing. Been taking that every day, though. I just, I don't know, just I don't know, like you said, you can, you can, you can recall things that uh, a little bit easier. Like you can access your hard drive faster. Mm-hmm. That's it. 
Speaking of mushrooms, actually, there's this, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm frequently puzzled, not puzzled, but I'm, I don't know, I'm amused, maybe we'll say is a better word, uh, because I feel like a, a cannabis people, even though we do get, I was going to ask you this question about bro science and everything else, but even though we do get kind of well-earned reputation for a lot of kind of junk science and everything else that passes through the, uh, through the cannabis scene, we are sometimes at weird junctions of uh, information that a lot of other people are not at and, and will be won't be at for many years. So for example, the junctions of kind of fungus and everything else for a number of years, people, I remember this basically as a home gardener, people used to uh, nuke their fungus. Anytime you saw any kind of fungus, everything basically you used was an antifungal, right? And now we realize actually fungus is far more important, arguably than almost anything else in the, in the soil. Coot's been on here before and has said how fungi, well, lichen really had to uh, uh, dissolve. This was a, an absolute mindfuck. They had to dissolve all the stones in the world, basically to create enough rock dust so that we could have soil so that everything like a carrot could grow, you know, so fungi had to exist beforehand. So I guess, where am I going to with that? Uh, uh, what is the, um, what is the overlap between fungi and bugs? I mean, you touched on it a second ago, but how do I say this? We, I guess I'm, 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 I'm not being clear about what I'm talking about with cannabis growers. Can, cannabis growers were some of the first people I feel like to integrate for good or bad reasons. We started to talk about mycorrhizae in sort of a, 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 a part of our conversations. I guess the, the jury is out whether mycorrhizae are actually beneficial, but you know, for cannabis people, like other people would have nuked the mycorrhizae and we're actually trying to grow them. Uh, cannabis people are also a lot of times growing medicinal mushrooms and everything else. I don't know, I guess I'm making maybe too broad of a question, but is there an overlap between fungi and bugs, or at least maybe even changing your understanding of those things? Well, I mean, if you look at mycorrhizae and pines, I mean, that's been known about for a long, long time. And that's the, the inoculums have been available for decades um, for that uh, association. Um, and so I do think certain industries have been there um, with mycorrhizae pretty early on. Because um, again, it's, it's, I mean, we've known about mycorrhizae a long time. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, Paul Stamets comes up you know, quite a bit and, you know, Star Trek, huge fan of Star Trek, but, you know, people are like, oh yeah, do you hear Paul Stamets? He's got this fungus we're going to use to, you know, kill all the insects. Well, we've been, I personally have been working with fungus killing insects since the nineties. This is, and commercial right. products have been available. I mean, we've been using them on ornamental plants since the nineties to control Did we just lose Suzanne? Control pass. This is not a new thing. Uh, you just uh, conked out there for a second, oh. briefly. But oh. I think we got the. I think we got the gist of it. Well, so if anything, maybe cannabis people are thinking too highly of themselves, which is leads me back into the next point. Uh, what about the bro science that we perpetuate because we do think so highly of ourselves? Since we're puffing all that fat chiva or that that uh, dank chiva, what do we perpetuate? Well, I think what happens is, um, you know, all in my mind, all science kind of starts as an anecdotal observation. It's like, huh, we did this and that happened. And what has to be done is then that has to be tested and replicated and proven. And that's really what's happening. What I see happening is people just see it happen and then make that quick association and then run with it as a fact. Uh, I think a really good example of this, which is outside of the cannabis industry, but it's a, it's, it's a good model for this situation, 
is there was an invasive pest, the Asian longhorn beetle um, showed up in Central Park. They're worried about all the trees. And <clears throat> so they started treating um, all these trees with a neonic pesticide, a metaclobrid, because you can, you know, dump it at the base. It goes up, kills the beetles in the tree. Well, then they started to see this weird thing that, gosh, you know, all these trees are now having spider mite outbreaks. And so what was told for a couple of years was that, well, because the imidacloprid is in the tree, it's killing off the beneficials that are predating on the spider mites. Does that make sense? Well, University of Maryland actually took a closer look at that and said, is that really true or is that just an observation? And through more research, they actually found out it is not true that imidacloprid actually makes plants more nutritious for spider mites. And spider mites that live on plants treated with imidacloprid actually live longer and have more babies. So even though the result was the same, why it's happening was not what was happening. And so that's why when we see these anecdotal things, it needs to be tested, replicated, and put through the scientific method to make sure that's really what's going on. And I just think in, in with some of the cannabis growers, they jump too fast to the conclusion from something anecdotal. But again, you know, things I see that are anecdotal, then I'm like, hmm, maybe we do need to set up some trials to see if this is really what's happening or is it something else that's happening? What are your most, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, who, uh, who are your most methodical growers? Are they uh, uh, greenhouse flower people or, or who is it? Or is it some cannabis person somewhere? Well, um, it depends. I think probably tomato Greenhouse tomatoes, I mean, they are on a program. Week one, you do this. Week two, because there's been so much research and science that there's just so much known about the food crops. Um, and also because they are very limited on the pesticides they can use because of pesticides not being registered for uh, tomatoes and food crops, but also because many of the indoor food crops require bumblebee pollination where you buy bumblebee hives and put them in, they can't spray the pesticides because it can damage their bees. So they have to be really on top of their scouting, really on top of their beneficial releases and really be um, strict about it because even like an ornamental grower, um, eh, if we have an outbreak, you know, there's always these rescue pesticides we can come in and get. But they are becoming more methodical because of pesticides are getting really expensive. And also pesticides aren't working like they used to because of the resistance issues. And also everybody's much more aware of worker safety, um, runoff issues and things like that. So um, I think it just depends on the actual grower themselves, because I have some growers from all industries, which are amazingly good on top of everything. And then I have crappy growers I deal with in all industries too. How does a person, uh, uh, go ahead. I have a question, uh, Suzanne, um, kind of on the topic of grow science, because there's been something that's been going around in the cannabis community about treating hemp russet mites with beneficials. And there's actually been um, a couple of, I think one or two university studies that have been quoted as backing up this information. I'm just wondering what your opinion is on it. Okay. Well, I don't have an opinion. I have Not science. The opinion. I apologize. That's okay. Wrong choice of word. <laughs> oh, but Wendy has a kitty. Um, so 
there is a difference between research. And um, I think part of this comes from the LSU website. There's no research on the LSU website. It is, they are quoting anecdotal stuff they've heard. But Colorado State uh, with Whitney Cranshaw, and I did not count the mites, but I helped him kind of set this research up where we uh, trialed the commercially available predatory mites and set up in a controlled environment. Will these predatory mites control hemp resident mite? And what Colorado State found is no, they don't. Um, and so the trials have shown it doesn't work. Now, people say, dude, you know, but I released this and my hemp resident mites were gone. Well, you don't know if that was actually what did it. And a lot of times I find out people are doing multiple things that, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I was spraying stuff oil for aphids, but, you know, that's probably what got the impressive mites. Um, people have to look at the sources of information and make sure it's cited about where the research came from. Um, and I, and, and unfortunately, you know, normally people look to universities for good quality information, but the since the university's hands are so tied on working in cannabis, um, some can do some hemp work. They're kind of struggling and playing a little bit of game of telephone where they're just talking to people and repeating anecdotal things. So look to see if there's actual citing on where this information came from. Um, because in my experience of the commercially available predatory mites currently on the market in the U.S., we have not been successful to control a hemp russet mite problem. And you have to be very careful because what a lot of people say is, oh, but they work to control russet mites. There are numerous russet mite species and they may work to control one russet mite, but not another russet mite. And, you know, it's, it's very frustrating to me because I often have to come in and clean up these bad recommendations um, because, you know, they were told, oh, put a lot of cucumeris out, put a bunch of Swirsky out. Oh, put them out in high numbers and that will prevent you from having a problem. Well, either they eat them or they don't. I mean, it's, you know, I don't understand that necessarily. And yes, I wrote an article like six years ago. I regret talking about Andersoni, um, but I was given bad information from the manufacturer saying it did control uh, hemp russet mite, but now I, I have not ever seen it actually work to control hemp russet mite. So know your sources um, and make sure that when somebody says it, you know, where did they get that information from? What was I just going to ask? I'm blanking right now. I'll think about it for a second. Cheers, Charlie's Farm. What's going on, my friend? Cheers, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. Bug Lady, James, it's a pleasure. And uh, I'm going to get to work some trimming and just uh, listen. Good on, man. Literally fell out of my head. It had to do with what you were just talking about, and it well, is well, well, <laughs> well. Okay, go ahead, James. That's an answer. So, would you say that anyone who is recommending those things um, in a professional um, uh, in, in a professional space is being irresponsible, and maybe uh, potentially causing their customers money? It's very difficult to be a consultant. Um, I mean, I, it's amazing how many people are like, you know, oh, I'm just gonna, I wanna do what you do, Suzanne. And it is tough to make a living solely as a consultant because every day I think about my recommendations it can make or break somebody's business. And it's a heavy, it's a heavy weight um, to, to, to carry. And I do get very frustrated because 
you know, again, coming from a more traditional horticulture background where we just had a couple consultants and we only consult, we don't sell fertilizer on the side. We don't sell bugs on the side. We don't do other things on the side. We make our living as consultants. Um, I was kind of blown away with how many consultants there are in the cannabis industry um, that, you know, hey, I worked at a cannabis facility for two months. I'm qualified to be a consultant. I just, it's frustrating to me because I do feel like, and maybe this is wrong, but I feel like I paid my dues, you know, going to school, going to college, getting educated, sweeping floors, literally in garden centers to get where I am today. Um, I even, when I started my consulting business, I couldn't make enough money just solely consulting to make a living. I literally shoveled horseshit to have supplemental income so that I could get my consulting business going. Um, and I feel like I've worked really hard to get here. And it frustrates me when people walk in and and are giving bad recommendations. And I, I, I don't think it comes from a malicious place. I think it's because they're uneducated and they don't understand. They also are not probably working close with the different universities. Um, they're just going by kind of what they hear through the game of telephone through the industry. I mean, I'm on a plane almost every single week going somewhere. I'm flying out in the morning to Carolinas and I'm going to Florida. I'll be in California next week, be in Vegas the week after that. I mean, I'm in a facility somewhere every week and having my feet on the ground in the plants is really important. But I also think my connection working with universities and going to scientific meetings to see what the latest research is and how can I apply it. And, you know, a lot of these other consultants that are calling themselves consultants aren't taking the time and investing in themselves and spending the money on themselves to get educated on what you need to know. They think just by reading on the internet and regurgitating what they're seeing on the internet, that gives them enough background and information. And I just don't feel it does. And unfortunately, it's a real disservice to the industry. How do, am I muted? How do cannabis, let's call them consumers on this side, because, you know, people hiring a consultant, I guess would be a consumer in some sense. How would cannabis growers and farmers and so on uh, figure out, how do I say this? How do they know the difference between, let's say, Bug Lady Suzanne and... Uh, how would they vet them? Was, yeah, how would they vet them? Exactly right. So the first thing, and I tell this to my growers all the time, if somebody comes and gives you advice and they say, okay, you need to do this. Why, why are you qualified to tell me to do this? What are your credentials? And, you know, it's been a kind of this weird anomaly this last, I would say year and a half, two years, I've actually been given a bit of shit to me um, because I did go to college for entomology and that, you know, I'm not a real foot on the ground kind of person. Cause I would, well, you know, again, I, 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 I've had my feet everywhere. Um, and I think for the scientific fields, um, when you're going to get so specialized, um, and don't get me wrong, I know a lot of great cannabis growers, vegetable growers, ornamental growers that did not go to college that are good growers. But when you're going to really go down a very deep scientific path, and, you know, understand these things, I really think going to college and getting a good basic understanding of research and science and anatomy and physiology or whatever you're going to work in is really important. So I do think, A, you should 
have somebody that's gone to school and have a background in it? B, are they licensed? Um, you know, different states have different rules. Um, Pennsylvania is super kind of loosey-goosey. You know, I have a business license. I'm set up as an LLC. I've got all my legal protections. But if you're in like California, which I wish, I wish we had some Pennsylvania, if you give out any fertilizer, pesticide, that includes fungicides, insecticides, miticides, any kinds of recommendations to growers, you have to be licensed by the state. You cannot just give out advice. And what Who the is, state has- uh, the state, you have to carry um, a license. And what they do is they look at your credentials and you actually have to pass written tests to show you really know what you're talking about. Because what they don't want to have happen is just anybody hang their shingle out and can give really bad advice. And that's what's happening. And I think the state in California is going to start cracking down on these people because the amount of things we've heard about crazy crop advice and everything it always comes from california so yeah i'm just i'm, I'm wondering more about this yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen anybody have to take a test or anything like that well i mean i just i mean i'm not going to point out companies I mean, but i, I will take a test i mean i've gone through i have to take my test to get my, my cannabis employee my workers license but, that but that, that's to be a consultant to give recommendations to people like if you're gonna go into you know joe blow's cannabis farm and tell them how to manage their pests you have to carry your pca license and that's if you go look, there's a whole CAPCA is a whole group that they provide credits because you have to continue, continue your education. You have to continue to learn. Again, you have to pass a written test to like identify insects. Um, you have to know about fertilizations and all, all this kind of stuff to prove that, you know. Um, and so, I mean, a good example, I mean, because you do have um, people that carry their certificate or license. Um, I mean, Saul Alba, beneficial insectary, he has his. Um, so, I mean, cannabis people do have it, but it's, it's cannabis's disconnect from agriculture in a way that I think people don't know um, about this. Um, and, you know, I've tried to look if I should get a California license, but I don't live there. So it's kind of a, a weird thing, but I wish I was required to, and I wish more people were, because that would help um, kind of thin the crowd. And for me, you know, people, I'm always afraid people are gonna be like, oh, well, you're bitter, Suzanne, because it's competition. Let me tell you. What the, uh, do you know what the name of that license is? Uh, it's the PCA license. Um, uh, I'm just looking it up real quick. Uh, agricultural, agricultural Pest Control License. Uh, if you go to CD. PR.California.gov. Um, it tells you about new applicants for PCA applicants right there. And so my other friends that work in ornamentals and vegetables in California, they carry the license. And this way, um, you know, people have a, a background in it. Um, so I think that's another thing, um, you know, college education, certifications, licensing, and also, you know, just looking at the record. Um, and I know this is a very unpopular thing to say, but just because you're popular on social media does not mean you are necessarily good at your job. I mean, I wish I could just sit home all day and post crap on social media. I could make all kinds of great videos and pictures and that. 
I'm sorry, I'm out working. And isn't that like a seesaw? Honestly, you have to sit on one end or the other, basically. You can't basically be in the middle. You can't be on social media all the time and also be doing stuff all the time, right? Yes, and that's, that's I struggle with the social media part because honestly, you know, you get up, you're in a greenhouse all day, you get out at five or six o'clock, you're tired, you grab dinner and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go write a social media post. No, that doesn't happen. I go, I call my husband, I check my email because I get like 80 emails a day and boom, I'm out cold before I have to get up the next day and do it again. And I struggle greatly with social media. Um, I want to do more. Um, I just, I don't have the bandwidth to do all the stuff I want to in my head um, online because I think I have been in my head, I've been writing lots of great little short videos that I want to do. And I'm going to try to do a series of videos on my Christmas break. Um, because once I'm done with Christmas, I'm kind of done with candy making because candy making season's coming next. So, um, but I, I you guys need to hear about her candy making. Yeah. It's, well, it's okay, yeah. We need to talk to that. Yes. Yeah. But I, again, that, back that brings to up, uh, that's like a mm. pest control that license. It's like, well, the there is, there's some crop the advisors. Yeah, no, that's one of the categories. Um, yeah, I just, I've never, uh, I've never seen such a person ever come in, and I, I work for some pretty large uh, sites here in California. Never, like I said, I, I think there might be a grandfather period happening um, because, because it's relatively new. But if you look up again, CAPCA, that's the association. Because I've come out to California and I've spoken at CAPCA meetings um, to teach for credits for the the courses. Um, but, you know, the other thing, you know, I mean, I do look people up on LinkedIn um, and see what their credentials are. What have they been doing? I know that um, today there is a lot of job hopping with, you know, these kids of today, you know, uh, but, you know, I kind of look at what people have been doing um, to see what jobs have qualified them. And it's amazing to me, other consultants I come across that literally have worked in a cannabis facility for a couple months or maybe a year, and they think they're qualified to be a consultant in that. And I just don't think people had, are nowadays, ready for that. We had those same kind. There was those same style of consultants when it was like medical twenty years ago. I mean, that's not new. There's always always somebody in every field has somebody like that. You know, they they, they fucking they learn the headlines and they don't actually learn a trade. And then there yes. are you know, there are people that have. Large followings and that, that's every that's every industry under the sun. It's also its own job. Like people hire a social media advisor just to do social media because it's a full time job to an extent. You can get paid off of it if you if you work hard enough on social media. But like like you said, you can't do a full time job working in the field and then do a whole social media on the side. Eh? That it's just too much work. Content creating is hard. Like people think it's easy, but making good content is hard. It is. It's a challenge. Uh, I think all of us have that challenge, Suzanne. I have that same thought. Uh, how do I say this? I'm probably not even as busy as you are. And I have that same thought all the time. There's tons of people who nail social media. And that seems to be one of the big keys to sort of make it in the modern world, really. But, you know, not everybody has that skill. Sorry, go ahead. Nailing social media doesn't make you an expert. Also true. Yeah. In your field. Well, so. and, and and that's something too, you know, you have to look at the content that's going up and where is it coming from? Um, and is it actually their content? Because there's a, you know, I'm obsessed with insect photography. I mean, Wendy and James have seen, you know, my presentations, the videography I do, and you don't find it online. 
because it will just get cherry picked and stolen and sold and end up in all these different places. So I don't put much content online. Um, but what some people do is they just go take it and then present it as their own and not cite sources. We recently had a situation um, where we stumbled across an article online and the photos looked like kind of familiar to me. And I did some poking and um, the author had just taken them where they were copyrighted pictures by other people and just used them in the article without any permission. And watermarks, they don't give a fuck. I know. And for somebody, well, they'll crop them out too. But also if they come on a website that specifically says like Wikipedia, you can't use these without permission. Um, you know, if you're a writer, you should know better. You, you as a writer should be responsible to understand that. And, um, and don't think someone like me will not legally come after you if you take one of my photos and use it without my permission, because I'm a jerk that way, because I have I, I actually had a dark room since I was in middle school. And so I've really been in photography all these years. I have 12 cameras. I just bought a new system. It's arriving tomorrow. And of course, I'm going to be gone and motorized um, slide rail that mounts to a computer oh, you box. Have a stack shot or what? It's on its way. The X3. All right. On. The X3 stack shot, bought a whole new computer system, bought the whole shebang um so the extra uh, the s3 hold on i can look this up that's the full motion that's the full motion control uh-huh awesome. uh-huh there we go yep. yeah <laughs> so we i go. warned winky and james my talk for next yeah. year because i i got it to photograph uh thrips and aphids that's my main goal is to uh-huh. photograph them and have much better imagery because i've been looking at the stack shop for a couple of years um, but now that I've taken our dining room and again, converting it more into my office photo space, I have the room for it. Uh, because I mean, currently I do have like microscope set up all around well, over here. You can't see them and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm going even further into it. And, you know, I spend all this money and all this time and I'm not going to let someone just come steal my stuff. It'd be literally like somebody walking to your grow and stealing your buds and walking out and selling them on the street. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, people don't think that's the same and it is absolutely the same it's yeah how do i say this i don't even do it on the scale i've thought about getting one of these things but i how do i say it? it's it's for me more just a, a hobby like i don't really you know make money from showing beautiful photos but this is the the the, the basic basically this is uh to to get like a basic uh, uh stack shot you could in theory do this by hand but this will do it far better it basically automatically takes the camera forward but let's see here you have the full so the other thing they don't tell you is like you have to pay for this and learn how to use it not all your shots are usable you go through this incredible like she's saying she has a new computer new this new that she has to learn the the helicon soft whatever else the software there's an incredible amount of ip and money invested in this and some fuckwit basically comes along and steals your photo you know no wonder she's fucking shitty about it you know what i mean anybody would right yeah. So well, in, in, in that vein, Suzanne, can you address what you were going to bring up earlier, which is some people think you're bitter? <laughs> what? I'm not bitter. No, no, no. no that, you, that some people think that you're bitter and you are, you know, talking about what people should have and, you know, what's legitimate and what vets people because you're afraid of uh, that she's gatekeeping or something. Well, so, a form of copyright theft and plagiarism. Is what it is. Just another form. You're not doing anything. You know, you're doing the right thing. That's your hard work, your investment. I mean, it's just insane when people think that you're defending 
your right to your material. It's just absurd. Just because but it's online doesn't mean anything. But besides George, that too, George. that there's that there's like some fear of competition against or, or for that you have some fear of competition from some of these people, which you know James and I know is not the truth at all. That I'm pretty sure you say frequently. I wish there were more people that were doing what I'm doing. Yes, and yeah. we're legitimately doing it correctly because there's too much work for one person. Yeah, there is too much work. I mean, I honest to God, the growers are killing me and people get mad at me because I can't get to them fast enough or I don't have time for them. I, I mean, believe me, I wish I could help everybody, but I'm just one person. And, you know, other consultants in other industries, we work together on stuff. I'd be like, hey, this is in your area. You know, you're better at this crop. You know, you go do this. And so it's not about competition with other consultants. It's about doing a good job and making sure you're providing good, solid information and not just surfing the internet and taking other people's information and presenting it as your own when you're not actually out there doing the work yourself. And then I get blowback saying, well, you're an elitist because you went to college. You don't know what you're doing. Hmm. Yeah. What would, I mean, let's say, uh, how do I say this? Sometimes I feel like people, instead of just yelling at each other, could just raise, like, uh, take each other's hand or something. Let's say someone who did want to call you an elitist or something. What could that person do to get your approval? Like, would it be, for example, taking continuing education courses at a community college? Would it be getting an associate's degree? Would it be taking classes from you? Is there a way that that person who is, let's say, up to now criticizing you, that they could, let's say, get your approval, basically? Well, I mean, they don't need my approval. They just need to do a good job and not give bad information to growers that cost them money and steal other people's information and pass it off as their own. Um, I mean, I don't think that's that hard of a bar to hit, but I do think that making an effort by educating yourself goes a long way. Um, and, uh, you know, self-improvement, we all can use self-improvement. Again, I'm I, I work my ass off to get to any scientific meeting I can. Your own self-esteem being deflected. That's all it is. When they come after you, call you an elitist. Yeah, well, it's frustrating. It, I guess what's frustrating to me is because I have worked so hard to get here that people lump me in with these other people because they think we're all alike. And I just feel like I, I've worked really hard to get here, and I have. And people want to jump the line. People call me. I get at least one call a month. I'm like, hey, Suzanne, what you do is great. I'm like, thank you. Appreciate it. They're like, yeah, we want to do what you do. So how much do you charge? Because I want to start consulting. And how do you get your customers? And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, go to school, get your degree, you know, feel your way through the industry, work throughout multiple jobs in the industry. And that's kind of how you become a consultant is because you've been there and done that. Um, you just don't you know, start being a consultant without the experience. So how, many times right. week, how many times a week do you get people saying, I want to pay you for one day of your time so you can teach me what you do? <laughs> I get yeah. that too. I'm like, yeah, uh, no, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, no. And again, I mean, we have this new thrift species. We don't know if it's going to get cannabis or not. Um, I'm hoping not because it's very devastating in ornamentals and vegetables, this uh, parvospinous species. And so here we are, we're, we're, we're in this learning phase um, that, you know, we know nothing about this. It's relatively new to the United States um, and we're going to have to figure things out and learn. So, I mean, you constantly have to learn as you 
go and be well connected. So a good friend of mine, Sarah Chandrasek, she's an entomologist at uh, Amafra up in Canada. Um, she and I actually did a webinar uh, the other day um, on this pest to get people more aware. And I'm still learning from it from her because she's up to her eyeballs in it up there in the Niagara region in Canada um, because it's been in Florida. It's up in Connecticut in the Northeast. It hasn't been detected in Pennsylvania yet, but it's up in Niagara. So, you know, working with her and having that working relationship is really important that she and I can work together on this. Um, that uh so we can all grow together and that's what we need to do not this you know name calling and putting people down um but also working with people that are qualified for their jobs uh by the way uh, not all the questions have to be mine we've gotten some great questions in the the chat the most recent one has been from uh georgia grow guy who asks uh is there a microscope sub 100 bucks for the amateur uh, if not what's the bottom range microscope for someone not a professional scientist uh, james has just answered about three four hundred bucks what do you think bug lady well it depends on what you want to do um if you're going to be, because remember, a microscope is generally for slide-mounted specimens, and if, if for insect stuff, um, you know, getting into slide mounting is a whole nother science in itself. And most growers don't do that. What I recommend for basic insect um, identification is to get one of the USB microscopes, um, and that can attach to your phone or your computer, and you can take basic images. And generally with cannabis, you know, somebody like me, I, I know enough about our key pests in cannabis. And even the pictures are kind of shitty. I can figure out what a lot of this stuff is. Um, and something like that, I think, is, is better and easier to work with. It's also more mobile. Um, and when I teach workshops, um, I have some of the like $40 ones from Amazon. Um, I have like five of them now I use for workshops so people can use them there. Um, when I travel, I carry a Dynalite brand one. Um, I have actually, I think five Dynalites now. Their software is much better and the quality of the imagery is much better. But you know, my high-end Dynalite, I think it's like $1,300. And most growers don't need that. I'm, I'm kind of photography obsessed. Um, with getting that, that perfect image. For a microscope standpoint, um, I purchased um, a Celestron microscope. Um, I love that scope. I paid, I think, $325 for it um, a couple of years ago. I think it's now in the $400 range. I think it's way better than any of the scopes from Amscope. Um, Amscope, and I bought one microscope stand, two Celestron's pieces of their telescope uh, brand. So yeah, they have lots is. of information. Their, their microscope is phenomenal. It's a triocular scope, so you can mount a camera on it and everything. I really love the Celestron scope. Um, and my thought was, because I have a Meiji, my, a dissecting scope, and that's for branches and leaves, non-slide mounted things. That I spent a lot of money on like 20 years ago, because I knew that was going to be my primary scope. And I figured with the Celestron scope, I'd start there. And if I felt I needed a better scope, I could always sell that and go up I, instead of investing a lot of money and then realizing, oh, crap, I'm not using it enough. And the one thing with with microscopes as you move up, I mean, you do get some other features, but also if you're just quick looking at stuff, you don't have to worry about eye strain as much. You know, these high, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars. I even have a friend. He has a he's at one of the universities. He has a hundred thousand dollar microscope. 
that's to reduce eye strain if you're sitting there like 10 hours working at it. But again, the Celestron, just entry-level triocular microscope, I think is a really- Because they use really the same uh, objectives, right? You use it 50 times or 20 times, 100 times. It's not like the 20,000 or the $100,000 microscope sees farther. It's just probably a better experience, right? Yeah, you have foot pedals. It's all motorized when you get into the fancy stuff. And there is difference in the quality and in ocular glasses and things like that. But for what most people are doing, again, if you're interested in the bug stuff, um, you know, I would look at the USB microscopes. Um, you know, again, you can get low in ones for like 40 bucks. Stop, stop buying the ones that have the little scope and then the little LED display thing on them. And then you take your cell phone picture of the LED display and send it to me. You get one that the picture is taken on your phone and then you send your picture from your phone. By the way, that, before we forget or anything else, if someone wants to, because I think this is a pretty common uh, activity, you even have a, a, a form on your website basically for contact. People send you stuff all the time. How should someone send you the best example of a question that they're trying to answer like in other words first of all punctuation and capitalization probably but also how should the the photo and everything else be structured um well you know people will just send me an email with just a picture and nothing they're not like hey suzanne could you please look at this for me please and thank you go a long long way just asking and i mean i get pictures i don't know what do you want me to do with these pictures you know, um, and then a little bit of background information, you know, what's the crop? Because again, I get from all different industries. Also, if you're outdoors, knowing where you're located really helps is not because, you know, I'm trying to spy on you, but you know, if, if, you know, we're dealing with this, um, bean thrips, the Calio thrips, which is bad in California and the West coast, we think we might've detected it on the East coast. So if someone sends me a picture of it and they're in California, well, it's there already, but if somebody sends me a picture and I find out they're on the East Coast, well, we need to worry a bit more. So knowing the location is important um, when you're providing that information uh, to me. How, uh, sorry, just telling a joke and also trying to come up with a question. So uh, just real quick, the, the $40 scope, I mean, the $40 USB thing I use for my workshops, I just dropped a link to that in the chat. Um, I'm sorry, it's $33. Oh, and 5% off right now. So that I yeah. found is a Amazon very- Amazon Prime Day is coming up soon too. So you'll probably get yeah. more of a discount. Uh, 30, if, you, if you can't swing $33 oh, right Black now. Black Friday, sorry, Black Friday. Yeah. Um, but yeah, these are ones that, what I recommend is if you want to get into insect photography, start here. And if you use it, you can always move up. And that's what happened with me, the Dynalite. I bought a $100 one. Then I went to the $300 one. Then I went to, you know, and I kept moving up because I wanted better imagery and more features. So um, don't, you What's don't need to go blow a lot of money. Uh, let's say there's someone in the chat who is just itching to blow, I don't know, last time because prices aren't that high right now. But let's say, let's say just hypothetically, just for sake of argument, let me ask you this question. Uh, if someone does want to go nuts, uh, what's your favorite macro rig right now? Or also, which lenses are you using? I really, um, so I go between, um, I have a Canon Mark V and a Canon, what's this one? Uh, this is the Mark V, but this is a full frame camera. Um, so this is what I use for like firefly photography. A full frame means you get a bigger image, 
the one I have hooked up on my rig, you can't see to my left because it's in a microscope hookup and all that. Um, that's a cropped sensor. And so your insects look bigger in the image, um, but you don't get as much light in those images. And that one, I think that's the, I think that's the five. Um, but this one now, because of the mirrorless cameras coming, you can pick this one up, I think for about 4,000, this body. Um, but the MP lens is one lens I really like, but it's a fully manual lens. Um, I think it's running about $1,200 right now. I also like um, the uh, Canon 100 millimeter uh, macro, and you can work that with extension tubes to make that more macro. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then that doesn't even get into all the lighting um, that you use. Um, to to you know i've got flash systems and all of that so do you use i guess that's a good question do you use constant light constant lighting or do you use a flash depends on what i'm doing um i do use sometimes like when i'm filming a video like um I, you know i don't know i don't am i hold on let me see let me see if i can do something here sure. um just give me one second mm -hmm. Right, that's true. If you want to show anything, you can share. Well, sometimes um uh let me just go here real quick. Uh, uh okay, yeah, let me go. But while you're here. looking for that, do you think that USB microscope is better than the phones nowadays? Yeah. Okay. For sure. Um, so, okay. Uh, where's this video? Okay. Let me see if I can get this to uh, give me one more second. Okay. Let me see if I make that full screen and then I go over here and then I go back here and let me see if I can. Close this, go share screen. Okay. See if this works. It might, I don't know, the videos. Okay. Yep, can can you see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. like for this is a can of a seafood. I've noticed this weird behavior um, where they kick their honeydew away. See how they do that? Yeah. Um, yeah. We're having a debate on why, because some species kick their honeydew away and others don't. But like this, I have under a constant light source. Hmm. So, but for other photography, I'll have trigger flashes remote on the sides if I'm doing like white box work for more specimen stuff. But I really like to capture insect behavior and biology and, you know, doing stuff like this. So. So do you take your whole rig with you? I mean, how does that work? Do you fly, let's say, to, I don't know, Dallas to a greenhouse or something and take your macro rig and your flash and so on? Do you, do you bring it knowing you're going to be uh, taking some interesting photos of, let's say, uh, an aphid infestation or how do you do it? Well, it totally depends. Like I've packed up my gear and I've flown out to Portland, Oregon and set up in a hotel for a week. And then I asked a buddy of mine to take me to the absolute crappiest cannabis grows he knows. So I can collect lots of samples, bring them back to shoot at the hotel. Um, I spent a week shooting um, in Montana this week, nothing to do. Uh, I mean, this summer that had nothing to do with like cannabis or anything. That was just I'm going out into nature and shooting like snake flies and things like that. So, you know, I pack 
couple Pelican cases and take it there. But oftentimes um, using the Dynalite, I can get the photos I need out um, at the facilities without having to bring all my camera because it's really heavy. And it's also very nerve wracking to have that much camera gear and that much cost in the trunk of your rental car. And to be honest, this is a, we, we haven't even talked about it until now, but I hope that uh, the people listening in have kind of grokked this, that actually when someone asks, how do you know if your bug consultant is good, that this is how, honestly, <laughs> even if you don't have an entomology degree or anything, well, how do I say this? You probably have to have the entomology degree, but even if you do have a PhD in entomology, does the person actually have a lifetime library of self-made photos of aphid behavior and spider mite behavior and can recognize things on site? Yeah, that's that's the difference, honestly. She's, oh, she's personally you. invested a tremendous amount of time, effort, knowledge, because that stuff actually takes a tremendous amount of skill to learn all these new pieces of software, Heliconsoft or anything else. You have to learn, you have to conceptualize how to create that final photo that you're going to make from all of those stacked images. Those are quite conceptually challenging things to do. And you have to learn those things. I mean, everything in life is learnable, but you do actually have to take the time to do it. You know what I mean? And not everyone has yeah. that time well, to take the time. Okay. Go ahead. You stalled out there. Am I stalled out? No, no, go ahead. Uh-oh. No, we can hear you. Oh, maybe she is. Oh, thanks for stalling. Yeah. My lady's frozen. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, hold on. Oh, there I am. I don't know what happened. That was weird. <laughs> You're back. No, yeah, well, I appreciate what you're saying because I mean, I, I will say that I am, I have no work, personal life separation. It's it's all just merged. My husband, even though he doesn't do bugs, my husband's in the industry. I actually met him at a trade show like 23 or 24 years ago. Um, he works, he does biodegradable pots, so he works on that side of the industry. But our our whole life is, is it agriculture, personal pots or something, cow pots, uh, fertile pots. The the um, spruce fiber ones. So um, so anyhow, so yeah, I mean this is this is all I do. Uh, well, besides candy make, that's yeah. Uh, so D is fascinated about your candy making. Uh, yeah. I heard about yeah. you buy all these like antiquated or not antiquated antique candy machines and the how do I say this? You bake. I don't know. Are you willing to talk about? It? Are you interested in talking about your candy? Sure. Making? Yeah, because candy making season is coming up. Right. Um, so, yeah, irony, it's. Right. You no, know, go ahead. I was going to say the irony is you don't even eat the candy, right? You, you, no. you spend all this time on the candy, but you don't eat candy. Not really. I mean, my, this, you know, everybody knows this is my vice right here. That's how I get my sugar. Um, but you yeah, I. Anti candy. You just don't eat the candy. That's. Yeah, I mean, I'll taste it to make sure it's good, but like I'll get my friends bags of these like sour drops and like I eat the whole bag in an afternoon and I like, oh, I couldn't eat that much um, uh, sugar all at once. But I dropped the link to my candy making website, um, but I it's based around. Yeah. 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 Hustles, bro. Well, except for this, I make no money off of. This is an absolute hemorrhage, hemorrhage of money. Look at that! Look at that! And dude, so just so you guys know, she finds old candy making machines and restores them. Okay, that's how badass she is. And she goes, "Yes, here all dressed up." Like, there's a place in Michigan that we used to go like field trips on. It's called Greenfield Village, and it's like 
they've literally taken like slave quarters and all these old homes, historical things. All this where Abraham Lincoln's chair is. And uh, I brought it up to her once. She goes, oh, I know that place. So she's like totally into the historical candy making. And uh, it's pretty dope. Yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, it seems I didn't even know that you had. I was impressed by your bug lady website. And I'm even more impressed by this candy making. Look at that. Yeah, so my main focus is this clear toy candy. I don't think I have an, I've got more slides to upload into there, but the clear toy candy is the main kind of candy I make. And I have close to 600 molds uh, for this kind of candy now. And I get the molds and um, I have a reverse electrolysis bucket and I run them through there and clean them all out. And same thing with the uh, hand crank candy machines. And then I go to historic sites and demonstrate how to make it and i make that the same way they would have in the late 1800s i was gonna say how old are they wow yeah i have some molds from the 1860s so but yep so that's my i, I would love to say it's a hustle but man it's just a hemorrhage of right. money i mean you enjoy it though oh i love it i absolutely store? love it i'm sorry is there a store no. So what I do is I make the candy and then I donate okay. it to the local historic societies as fundraisers for them um, right on. To, to help make money. So because the historic societies really struggle, there's not enough people, there's never enough money. And it's a they're really good fundraisers for them. So. Uh, that's delightful, honestly. I saw a program years ago on PBS about that. In fact, they did a, a whole like 18 something dinner. And uh, the guy from uh, American Test Kitchen was uh, involved in it. Uh, I know he's got a bad rep now for so some of the things he's done, but but uh, it was pretty interesting how they did how they how hard it was back then to make this stuff, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it was mainly for the uh, well-to-do, yep. uh, some of the uh, delicacies that they used to make uh, in candies. And yeah, and and really, I mean. It's interesting because the reason candy really thrived in like Philadelphia and Baltimore um, in the late 1800s is because obviously the sugar trade was all the sugar was processed uh, in Domino's down in Baltimore and Franklin sugar in Philadelphia. So sugar was really cheap in this part of the country. So you kind of had this explosion of candy uh, companies and candy making equipment here because sugar was cheap that you didn't have like out on the West Coast because it would have been very expensive to transport the sugar out there. So I kind of live in, in candy central as far as history of, of the I actually candy. wondered why New England is so candy centric. Like that's where Hershey and all that stuff comes from. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's also what was it? Connecticut rum was one of our candy uh, alone, well, I was just going to say, like, what is it about sugar? Was it, was it, was it, I don't even know where I'm trying to make this connection. It brings good, like, especially back then, mm, when like a young kid would have like a candy, it was a treat. It was like a really special treat. I remember in Tom Sawyer when his grandma smacks him on the ear because he's eating an apple before dinner. And I just laugh <laughs> because of like a fucking apple. A parent these days would be like, oh my God, wow, what a miracle. Johnny's eating an apple. Anyway. <laughs> So I have a, so again, I particularly collect this kind of candy, clear toy candy molds, and I'm very focused on that. And I was able to get a receipt from uh, somebody that purchased clear toy candy on Christmas Eve, and I think it was 1870s, 1880s. And I did the calculations on the economy of scale and one little piece of candy today from what it costs. Well, and I haven't done the calculations since last year, but before inflation happened, but 
it's about $5 is what you'd have to sell one little piece of candy for today um, for what they paid for it back then. And that would have been a small piece of candy. It's absolutely ludicrous. You think about, you know, you think about how much computer prices are or whatever now, but you don't think necessarily about candy. It's just oh. like 18th century candy and there's not, mm. obviously there's some bowls and stuff, but. Yeah, candy. Oh, oh so, okay. If you stop, so stop scrolling. See on the left, uh, you, okay. See the lemon head box? No. Okay. Uh, yes. Okay. Scroll down again. Or did you scroll too far? Just scrolled up a little bit. Okay. Are you at the top again? I am at the Why top. Why have two again. screens going? Okay. Okay. Now, scroll now down a little bit on the left because there was an image there There's that was kind of box. The wood box thing that keep going down. Keep going. To, it's okay. It's about the very bottom. See that wood box with the weird gear things in it? Yes. I think Where'd I that go? The ribbon maker? Yeah. So that's the one. So you can't see it, but I have two of those setting right over there in oh. the original Thomas Mills. Actually, this auction right there that this is from, I bought that. Is that you? That's on my table. <laughs> That's the one. Yes, I bought does. that one. I bought another one, and I already have two of them, and I'm working on restoring those. And those are for making ribbon candy. I don't candy. even know what that is. Okay, ribbon, yeah, oh, ribbon candy. Ah, uh, okay. I haven't had ribbon candy in ages. It's for, it's all it's old school, man. Um, I watched, I think they're in Australia. They have a candy shop and they do all yes. old school candy and stuff. That's um breaking per, um sticky oh, or something. It's, it's um because I follow them too. They do a lot of the picture candy, the rock candy and everything. That's old school as fuck. Wow. Yeah. Hey, rock. They make designs and candy and they like mm -hmm. they, they they it's sticky. Yeah, they narrow it down and then they hand break it up. That's pretty cool. What's your yeah. favorite? I don't know. What's your favorite uh, candy? Do you have a specific candy that you actually do like? To make or eat? Uh, both or either one. Um, so, well, I love making clear toy candy. If I could make candy every single day, I would. I love pouring the hot sugar into the molds and taking it out. Um, my largest mold is uh, why, why specifically the clear toy, by the way? Just because it's clear? Or, I don't know. I don't know, because everybody thinks it's glass when they first see it. They don't think it's really candy. They think it's glass because it's so clear. Because most candy today is pressed into shape because it's machine made. The old... Clear toy stuff has to be hand poured to get the clarity on it. And it's too expensive to make it that way today. Nobody will pay for it because nobody will. Re I mean, there are a few people that will, but people just want lots of cheap candy and not the craftsmanship necessarily for it. Um, but yeah, I love making that. Um, but when it comes to eating candy, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of like, I love Twix bars. That's like... I just, I don't know what it is about Twix. I really love Twix. Um, but I have to say, uh, Kelly Vance from Finishal Insectory, one of my favorite people, he sent me last year some candy bars called Big Hunks, which are like this old, old candy bar. Those were amazing. And actually in Canada, they have Wonder Bars. And if you've never had a Wonder Bar, you need to experience a Wonder Bar. And I will have to say, thank God for my cannabis yeah. growers. It, my cannabis growers in BC kept me alive during this COVID. Like nougat and nuts? Oh, wow. That's they the, they sent said. me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big hunk is the one oh, Kelly sent me. Good. But the Wonder Bar, my, uh, some of my cannabis growers up in BC sent me a couple boxes during COVID to keep me alive. Um, 
when I couldn't That's travel because awesome. I, you know, would go to Canada a lot um, before COVID. Okay. And when I was up there, I'd always get Wonder Bars and Butter Tarts. I love Butter Tarts. No, so, anytime I go to the coast, I have to get saltwater taffy. I, it's, hard, it's hard to find like places three musketeers or something. No, it's, it's like, not like three musketeers at all. No, no. <laughs> Wonder Bar is peanut butter. That's Wonder Bar is amazing. Kind of looks yeah, like a butter. I agree. <laughs> you gagged reflexively at the thought of a three musketeers. It kind of looks like a one uh, a butter finger. But it's not as it's sweet the as a butterfinger. That candy bar, that candy company should just go out of business now. <laughs> None at all. If oh, she does not like something you're saying, you will know it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I have zero poker face. We have learned zero. Indeed. All right. I'm gonna. Have, I have to say the Wonder Bar is interesting, but I'm more compelled by this. Uh, what was uh, water one and you water one? The huh. The big, big hunk. hunk, you know, I found I found big hunks at um, I was in Missouri working over there and I found them at the Cracker wow. Barrel. So I grabbed my I have a big hunk actually on my coffee table right now. <laughs> oh, that's good. But What's yeah, the, I never even heard of it. Candy bar with a uh, nougat candy bar. Okay. So I don't know. I was. Oh, you were too. I was. I was a I don't know Guys, none yeah. of you guys have ever had big hunks. Like those are from like when I was a kid, and I am not that much older than all y'all. Maybe nah, I never had one. I'm on the East Coast though, so maybe it's different. I don't think so. Definitely had nougat. Never candy. heard of them. Oh, no. I never yeah. had it till an adult. They're good, right? Oh my god, yes. That's why I bought more. Um, trying to see yeah. that if they know the history of it. And you find them in California. It's like chunkies when I was a kid. I'm not really on sweets though. I, I, I'll eat a piece of candy. I'll crave it, take a piece, right. and then forget it. I'm done. Oh, it is the big hunk is from California. There you go. Windy for the win. I've had them before. California. Yeah. I see those all the time. I don't, but I just don't buy them. Hmm. I guess I'm not a huge candy bar person, but every once in a while, a candy bar hits the spot. I'm a mm -hmm. Simpsons fan, so Butterfingers stole my heart. Mm. I like the Wonder Bar. What you drinking? Oh, did I? It ain't water. Since we're talking about candy, I just figured. Uh, I, I drink my candy. I don't eat it. I drink it. I my coffee. People, people laugh when I get a coffee because, like, the place I go to, you can get like cinnamon sticky bun, like Butterfinger birthday cake, and like Timmy's. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, if you want to, Suzanne, if you're not bringing her like the apple a day, it's the Coca Cola day. Ooh, wow. get Coke. Still red, still shiny. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, I see you don't have the uh, the Mexican Coca Cola, the glass bottle Coca Cola. Are you into that? Are you into the? I'm a corn syrup girl. Corn syrup. I see. So bad. It's so bad. I'm I'm still alive. <laughs> Has it corn killed syrup. me yet? <laughs> they say corn syrup gives us that. What's that? I'm about to go get my Butterfinger Blizzard. Yeah. It's not even corn. It's not even corn anymore. Is it now just completely synthesized? Oh, total garbage. Huh. But I drink it. We all do. 
I try to avoid yeah. it. But yeah, it's in so many different things. Uh, what was it? Uh, Coop was just talking about. I didn't realize this. Uh, friend of mine eats those uh, impossible burgers, and I guess they're just they're not sugar, but they're uh, salt. Car- salt. Uh, car- uh, what's the fucking word for it? Anyway, a chemical oh, process takes oil and turns it into burgers. Basically, it just rehydrogenated or whatever. So you're eating essentially oil. Just some of the worst stuff you can put in your body. The impossible. Oh, it's it's horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah. How do I say this? It's not that I'm not sympathetic. Like, I mean, I don't, I've said this before. I like eating meat, but I don't like the murder of animals. You know what I mean? So I'm like, dude, I'll, I'll totally eat a fake burger if I can. But God damn it. That's worse somehow. You know what I mean? That's worse to eat like a. They tried to push soy burgers. They, they were all right. But like, I don't know. I, I see, garden I'm, burgers. I'm, I'm with yeah, hunting. Bur- I'm, in gra- I'm in Garden Burger Central, and that I've never had a Garden Burger that I liked. We were I don't mind going hunting for my food or fishing for my food, you know, like something I grew up with. I would much rather kill an animal and eat it than, uh, you know, buy an animal that were tortured and trapped in a cage for their entire life. And I would uh, much rather do um, either one of those and eat bugs. I'm I'm curious to know how Suzanne uh, feels about uh, the possibility of eating bugs. I know there's like people are using cricket flour and root down stuff. So I'm just uh, I'm wondering. There's a lot of talk about there's a lot of protein in it. I heard. Yes, and there's a lot of. Um, and At the entomology you- meetings, they have tracks on it. Yeah, it's a no-fly zone for me. Absolutely. I'm the world's most picky eater. It ain't happening. I'm not eating my friends. Sorry. I was going to say, it'd be like cannibalism for you. My friend had a scorpion lollipop I wouldn't touch, but I've had like chocolate-covered ants that I didn't mind. I mean, and I have cr- I've had cricket. I have some kind of a problem with bugs like as well. I've, I've said this before. I'm probably the least squeamish mm. person I hear. I eat seafood and all this kind of stuff. I love oysters and everything else. And here's an irony. Oysters mm. and lobsters and shrimp and all those guys are basically ocean bugs. But for some reason, as soon as it's a land bug, I'm just like, no, pass. I'm not, I'm not into it. So. Yeah, I'm not big on the things that filter shit out of the ocean <laughs> to eat them. Because it's basically what a lot of those things do. Um, not big on filter feeders. Uh, marine biology kind of took that wind out of that sail for me. I learned too much about them. I think it depends well, on where the filter. That, but I don't, I don't so, know. Yeah, they're, they're filtering like ocean f- shit. It all depends on where they, they get their filter feeders from. Like quality of water is the biggest thing. And where's their quality of water left on the planet? I mean, come on. This is the problem. And how much of the ocean have we... Like, we've only really what 20 i think max 20 percent of the ocean oh no but all of it has microplastics in it you guys can have the shrimp and oysters and i'll just keep drinking my soda with my corn syrup you know mm. everybody's got their thing so well, which is for me we'll see each other in hell pretty much that's what it's gonna yeah. come down to uh go ahead i think you were raising your hand james or were you Maybe you weren't. You breathe uh, microplastics every day. No, there was just an article today. I don't remember. Oh, it was a study done apparently in Israel. I was like, what was the connection to Israel? So apparently there was a study done in Israel and all of the beaches are suffused with microplastics. And not only that, but all the water on the beach, I think that's logical, but they still did a study on it. All the water that touches the beach and washes up on it is suffused with fucking microplastics. No, 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 no. Yeah. Anyway. Well, just a certain amount of microplastics in the end, no matter what you do. I think they found a healthy breaking down. 
or something like that. I was reading an article or something. Great, but that'll take how many thousands? Yeah, years that's years. the it's thing. Always that thing. Oh, there's a solution. Yeah, okay, it'll take a million years. We're not going to be here. Uh, so, I mean, the world will bounce back at some point, but it might take 150 million fucking years. You know what I mean? The, the dinosaurs were extinctified a couple times by asteroids and the world came back. It's all lush and shit now, but it took a long time. Uh, Stangman was asking, uh, could we ask uh, the bug lady about black soldier fly frass used in living soil? And I was like, oh, what more specifically? Well, he's heard basically that it's quite good for soil. Do you know if that's true or not? That basically uh, black soldier fly frass is good. For the soil. Well, where did the information come from? Because it's amazing how industries can always find uses for their products. You know, um, you know, byproducts of an industry, they try to find a home for them. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying it's not good, but you know, I would look at where the information comes from. I mean, yes, it's it's a manure basically, but it's going to be a um, like I, I guess it would be considered a green manure because they're uh, breaking down green waste and feeding on. I mean, I don't think it's going to hurt, but, I, you know, people that say, oh, if you put this stuff on here, you won't have insect problems. Don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not that cut and dry. But I mean, if it's a nutrient source of your plants and it's going to have different microbes and I don't think it's going to hurt anything. But I haven't seen any and I haven't gone looking for any studies that, you know, that so this think- is the game changer. I think what they say, it, it, it's a chitin-based like life form that you're adding into your soil and you're promoting chitinase. That is, but how is it? Because it depends on what they're eating. The, okay. the, the, the frass or the soldier fly lark. I mean, putting the frass on there, not I the actual it, soldier fly. I think flies. there's a difference. Well, I think there's... Uh... Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? I think there's a difference in quality of something that fresses, which is kind of funny because we're talking about literally a difference in quality of shit, but I guess there is even in shit, there's a quality of shit. So yeah. you want the highest quality shit you can get, not the lowest quality shit. Yeah, but I don't uh, think the real high that. quality poop, honestly. We, here on this show, we will really give you the highest quality shit, honestly. Uh, but uh, the idea with the super high quality uh, uh, black soldier fly uh, frass, I'm remembering now because I actually used to use it. Uh, I didn't stop using it. I just ran out, basically. But the idea was when I bought it that uh, supposedly it has uh, uh, chitinase destroying bacteria, essentially, because the... Uh, uh, frass, at least when it's supposedly well harvested, is not only exoskeletons, but also not only poop, but also exoskeletons from demised. Uh, uh, it's like a graveyard basically scooped up of black soldier flies. And that supposedly, supposedly uh, includes bacteria that will attack uh, bugs in the future. I mean, I, I don't know, maybe that's not a good supposition because you're actually talking about maybe attacking black soldier flies. But again, the idea is supposedly you have this kind of microbial inoculation in the process. And then also supposedly it's nutrient rich. It probably is nutrient rich, but what do you think about the microbial? Well, it's again, not what I think there is data. And again, I actually sold a product in the nineties that it was basically, um, ground up seafood shells and it was the exact type of thing you're putting chitin into the soil that increases your chitin feeding bacteria and the idea was for that product um was to then reduce the number of eggs of plant parasitic nematodes because the shells and the nematodes would be eaten by the bacteria and it can help reduce it the question is is it enough that you don't have plant parasitic nematode problems no um but it, it can feed that that little ecosystem in there as far as because, again, I've, I've heard people saying, you know, if you put this on, then you won't have insect problems. The plant will the insect 
never spends any part of its life cycle in the soil, um, how is that going to work? I mean, certain insects do, um, like like onion thrips will drop to the soil to pupate. Uh, all don't make it down there, but they try to drop to get down there. And, you know, possibly that may help some with that. But one of the big things I always say in all my presentations, cannabis industry, is that if this kind of stuff really worked really well, why hasn't big ag been doing it all along? Because remember, um, they their profit margins per acre are very slim. Uh, same thing with my poinsettia growers. Poinsettia grower maybe makes five cents off a of poinsettia, if that. They cannot afford to use products that don't work. Cannabis people will throw three times the rate and 47 different products because they can't afford to. So it's hard to sort out sometimes what's working and what's not. And so with that, if things really worked ag, greenhouse people, all these other industries that have been around. I know cannabis has been around just as long, but the more public industries, they would be doing this stuff if it worked and it was affordable. We get taken for a lot of stuff, though, honestly. Clackamas Coots, a pity he's not, he's not on tonight, but he's talked about for years now the, the rapacious bottle industry, the, the oh, bottle industry. In the industry. Uh, what's that? Oh, is he in chat? Well, cheers, Coot. But uh, how I say, how do I, uh, I think among the biggest contributions he's made is basically the people's understanding that there's this incredible, uh, huge profit margin. Uh, how do I say this? Basically, nutrient companies taking cannabis growers over the barrel just for profits for, for the quality yeah, not for the quality of their grow that would be understandable but no just basically for profits for themselves and that's it and that's i see the, it in the for pesticides too i mean it's insane what cannabis growers <laughs> pay for pesticides when there's better products that we use on on the the call it, traditional ag side that are just as safe um and are a fraction of the cost and there's research to back up they work how does somebody uh, that relates to something I was going to ask you a long, long time ago in the conversation? Uh, I remember a couple different. I guess we don't have to mention who they are, but I remember seeing a few different uh, uh, growers really struggle and throw just tons of money at the wall dealing with uh, russet mites. One time, I don't remember a couple different times, and basically the insectaries that they worked with just kept sending them the same thing over and over and over again. Probably because it made them a, a you know bought them a new car or whatever, because it was literally like. 20,000 bucks in one case and I don't know, 15,000. No, I've, I've seen that. Like I mean, that is, that, I guess they're a good customer at that point, I suppose. I don't know, but so a, a, a couple things. So when it comes to biocontrol, we often actually do treat biocontrol almost like a pesticide. A lot of my ornamental growers, every two weeks, their bugs show up and we put them out. We're doing that in lieu of spraying for them because you never fully eradicate the pest. You potentially for things like onion thrips, Western flower thrips, um, cotton melon aphid, green peach aphid, white flies, they can come in from outside. So there's that perpetual potential for them to come in. Um, and so we do repeat programs like that. But you have to be evaluating your program every single week to see if it's working. And nothing makes me more crazy. Well, there's a list of things that do. But if your pest numbers are going up and you call your supplier and they say, well, put more bugs out. They should work at the rates you were given if you did everything right. Now, granted, if you sprayed some wacky, you know, 
crazy product that who knows that could disrupt your beneficials, could have some weird residue, spraying sulfur, it's going to mess up your beneficials. Um, if you do things like that, that can create those problems. But you, this kind of goes back to the bad consultant people making these recommendations because I have been, I have a customer now I work very closely with because they were spending, they'd already spent like $30,000 on predatory mites to control hemp russet mite because they were told predatory mites control hemp russet mite. And I mean, trust me, I love biocontrol. It is, it is my whole existence. I would love nothing more than we had a really good biocontrol agent for hemp russet mite, like we do for broad mite, like we do for spider mite. The predatory mites we have are not cutting it for hemp russet mite. So this facility called me and said, you know, we've been doing this. And I'm like, well, why don't you just do three sprays of Sufoil X back to back? And they did. And we haven't had a hemp russet mite since. And that was a fraction of the cost because you can mix up, uh, what is it, for about $60, you can make 250 gallons of spray of Sufoil X for $60. So this before I bought a, a jug of it and it's basically a lifetime supply, I think, because I use it. I don't even know how often I not even like made a dent basically. Uh, so I guess that was it. That was my question. I mean, how do you find, just like we were talking about consultants, I suppose the same thing is how do you find an insectary or do you have to, because I, I guess the, these are slightly different questions because we have a whole audience of, you know, mostly actually home growers. We're, we're actually quite less commercial here on this show than, than I think most of the shows that you're used to. Uh, so how do I say for someone like me, it's a little bit less I don't know. It's it's maybe it's not a bad idea. Maybe it's actually a good idea, but it hasn't occurred to me really to hire a consultant for my uh, bug issues in the past. Actually, maybe I should have. Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it would have been more affordable to deal with the cost of just hiring a consultant for a couple hours and not dealing with you know, several months of pain. But I guess where I'm going to with this is how do you, let's say, as a smaller time person, how do you evaluate if your insectary is kind of taking you over a barrel or if they are honestly treating you well? If they're, how do I say it? If they're, if, if their interest is to keep you as a customer, as opposed to just kind of sucking money from you. So the first thing, if they try to tell you to use predatory mites to control hemp resident mite, maybe find somebody that. else. That's a little bit of a litmus test there. But also, and one of the, because, you know, I teach all this stuff in, in classes and workshops, which I will give a plug. James and Wendy are having a conference next year in uh, Massachusetts, and I'm going to be lecturing there, and I'm going to teach a full day workshop. Um, but one of the things is like, how do you buy bugs? And one of the big things is I think you need to deal for the most part direct with insectaries. Um, and there's a lot of confusion online because people think if they Google, you know, Phytoceles persimilis and their first results, oh, they must be insectaries. They're most likely not. They're often distributors who buy the bugs in from other insectaries and repackage them and send them out. Challenge is is because if you are a small home grow, um, generally the orders are too big uh, for insectaries for you because the packaging is bigger because it's designed for more commercial facilities. The problem is is if you buy from these repackaging distributors, you're going to get older product, but there's a chance that it's not going to be as good a quality because with especially things like phytocelius persimilis. I mean, you get that. That stuff has got to go out that day. You do not want to hold that. There's no food source for it in the packaging and you need to get it out. And so, you know, if they go from the insectary to a distributor, it sits there a day, day and a half, and then they repackage and send it out. And then you're too tired that night. You know, 
you may have bought a bottle of 2000 mites, but maybe you're putting out 400 by the end. And for a home grow, you're probably putting out enough. But when, when it comes to my larger commercial facilities, where we are literally counting like two mites per square foot to go out, you can't afford to have any of those mites in the bottle dead. Um, so it's, it's good to know who the insectaries are and who the distributors are and try to plan accordingly. I will say that, um, and I've mentioned before, beneficial insectary um, in Redding, California, they do sell to homeowners through their green methods website. They're one of the, I think, really the only U.S. insectary that has a homeowner website that you can order through. Hmm. That's cool. Because that's been the problem before, even when I've wanted to get, I don't know, persimilis or anything else, the quantities from any of the copper or whatever uh, have been uh, 50000 100000 and even the price would be too, $400, $500, it was just a little bit too much, yeah. And usually persimilis, the smallest quantity you can get is 2000 That's kind of been a standard size bottle, um, and for a homeowner, yeah, I guess okay. you're going to pay about and that's about like. Yeah, like 18, 20 bucks. It's 18, sort of, 20 bucks is about, but plus shipping. And this is always why it's good to know your neighbors and friends too, because if you can order all your bugs together and then everybody meets up and then gets their bugs and distributes them out, because that's, um, you know, that, not well, for- You can also spread the russet mites to each other as well, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Just sprinkle persimilis on yourself. Yeah, that's it. Use beneficial mites. Use beneficial mites. You'll be okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, bug lady, are fungus gnats a problem? I, I don't know how many times I've heard from people that fungus gnats are a problem that they're trying to solve. Are they or are they just a symptom of other either issues or non-issues? I'm going to give you the same answer. It depends. Um, I always say they should go for the most part. One, because we know they vector pathogens. Fusarium is bad in cannabis and we know they vector fusarium. Um and this is well-documented research um, about their vectoring ability and the larvas in the soil, they feed in the soil and they pick up the pathogens. Then when they become adults, they basically come like little B1 bombers flying around and they poop out the pathogens and inoculate other plants. So definitely, um, if you're worried about pathogens, they're worth treating for. Also, um, there have been some images floating around uh, from um, outside the cannabis industry, but you can see uh, tiny mites like broad mites hitchhiking the leg on the legs of white flies and fungus gnats. So they can actually vector the tiny mites around. Um, you also, I've got enough pictures of them stuck in trichomes and buds. Um, so it can be, I mean, if you don't mind, you know, smoking bugs with your buds, I mean, that's fine for a home grow. But from a pathogen standpoint, I definitely think they're worth managing and they're easily managed with beneficial nematodes and they're not that expensive to use and they're easy to use. That's fair. Honestly, fair points. I've said before that uh, I guess this will maybe tie into one other thing. I've said before that fungus nets aren't really an issue uh, and in a good living soil. And I think that living soil is the best, whatever, that's the whole thing on the show. But still, uh, I say that you should have some fungus gnats flying around every once in a while because they will basically not on purpose. Really. I see her expression right there. I see her. I see that. Oh, okay. All right. I'll finish my thought at least, but I've said before, I'll just finish my thought so you can crucify it afterwards that uh, a few fungus gnats is not a problem. And in, if anything, even beneficial, again, she's going to crucify me for this probably because it potentially feeds some of the bigger, better critters that you might have in the soil, like rove beetles or whatever else. But obviously, I'm not talking about some explosion of fungus gnats, but it's a fair point that you make that they're vectoring. Okay, go ahead. I'll let you. Yeah, yeah. Huh. all it takes is one vectoring. 
Mm-hmm. I remember fungus gnats are a family and the dark wing fungus gnat is the one that most of this research has been done on um, the vectoring capabilities. And we are seeing some other fungus gnat species around um, and there's just nobody studied them and we don't know enough about them yet. But traditionally, dark wing fungus gnats are what we're talking about here. And I will warn you again, um, the there are some really, really really bad cannabis documents online with people showing you images of like, how do you tell a fungus gnat from a root aphid and this kind of stuff? My God. And the pictures are wrong. I, the, the one in my mind that I've seen a thousand times over um, that was written up by, you know, a cannabis expert shows a fungus gnat, shows a root aphid. Here's how you tell them apart. They're both fungus gnats. It's not even a root, <laughs> a root aphid in the picture. And I will tell you, I think probably about 90% of images on cannabis websites for pests showing images are inaccurate on what they are. That's awesome. I have a whole presentation on cannabis websites and how bad the information is. See, I think a lot of people don't realize how much knowledge actually goes into this kind of stuff. They don't they don't have any awareness of it. They like, for example, they don't even know that the photos are wrong that they've seen before. And so they what is it? It's the Dunning-Kruger effect. They basically overestimate their ability to judge, for example, cannabis consultants because they figure, oh, it's not that hard. Yeah. Well, and with images, I mean, people like will send me a picture and they're like, what is this? I'll be like a thrips and I'll be asking or they'll say they have thrips. I'll be like, what species? And they'll send me a picture. You can't. Some you can, but uh, like to tell a Western flower thrips from an onion thrips, um, you have to take them. You have to put them. You use this stuff called Hoyer mount. You put the thrips on there. You put a slide cover. You have to warm it. You have to wait for it Western to clear. Western flower just has a cowboy hat. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but this is why. So if you go look online um, and you start looking at cannabis, you've seen a trend for a couple of years that everybody talks about Western flower thrips. And I've seen, you know, social media posts about Western flower thrips in Canada. I mean, in, in cannabis. And I'm not going to say that Western flower thrips cannot be in cannabis, but out of the hundreds of thrips I've looked at, I have yet to see a Western flower thrips in cannabis. It's been onion thrips. And the only way you can tell them apart is you've got to slide mount them. You count antennal segments. You look at the hairs on the pronotums. You look at the color of the ocelli, which are the eye spots in the back of their head. You can't do that with a 10X hand lens. You can't do that with your cell phone. And, And this is, cannabis people think that it's easy to do this bug stuff, but it's not. And I mean, I spent what I call my COVID vacation really teaching myself thrips anatomy and identification because I was even struggling with that, this stuff and trying to make myself better at it. Um, I'm actually going to attend a week long workshop at the university of Florida next year um, to get even better at uh, mite identification. Cause again, you got to do the slide mounting and all that kind of stuff. Cause I'm always pushing myself to improve, but people think, you know, oh, it looks like a Western flower thrips. It must be Western flower thrips, but they haven't taken the time to look and identify. And why this is so important is because biologies are different. The chemicals work differently. Biocontrol agents work differently. And in order to really put the best program together, we really have to know what it is. 
I am blanking completely on the species right now. I'm not even remembering if it's a bug or something else, but something I read recently, it was uh, two almost, almost the same organism. I'm, this is a very bad example, I realize now. Maybe it'll come to me in a second. I think it was a bug, but it doesn't matter for the, the sake of the argument. They were two very similar organisms and they were basically pathogenic organisms, but they happened to actually be only commonly considered the same species. Like they actually came from different continents. I can't remember what the fuck it was right at the moment. I don't know. Maybe it'll come to me in a second. But anyway, some kind of a critter, some kind of a pathogenic critter basically had completely different different evolutionary paths. They came one from, I think, Europe and one from Asia, basically. And as a result of that, they had completely different treatments and completely different uh, predators. So if you essentially, and I still can't remember what it is, but anyway, if you use, let's say, the wrong predator, it wouldn't have any effect basically on the other bug, even though they were superficially similar. Anyway, that's a terrible example. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, you know, I think a good example um, with with thrips is like onion thrips and echinothrips. Um, echinothrips isn't huge in cannabis, but it is in there. But their biology is so different because Western flower thrips and onion thrips drop to the soil to pupate and they go through their changes to adult in the soil. Echinothrips pupates on the plant. And so people are like, Google, Google, Google. Oh, I've got thrips. Google, Google, Google. Oh, I use nematodes. I use rope beetles. If you've got a kind of thrips, those won't do anything for the program. And even if you're using like cucumeris or Swirsky, cucumeris and Swirsky aren't beefy enough to take out a kind of thrips because of its physical size. You have to spray for a kind of thrips. You cannot use biocontrol to control it. And I've been in numerous facilities being sold biocontrol agents and they cannot get their kind of thrips under control because they're being sold the wrong thing because you have to know what species of aphid, what species of thrips, what species of mite you're dealing with in order to put a program together. And there's too many people guessing. So Suzanne, with uh, um, the amount of species uh, that are out there and the identification protocols and how stringent you have to be, um, how often are you um, every year continuing your education to expand that knowledge? Because I heard you mention that, you know, you're going to, um, you know, go learn, you know, expand on your skills so you can constantly improve. How important is that? And, and are you seeing the same people at these things? Is it is it the same group of experts or, um, you know, like what's the makeup there? Usually um, it's uh, researchers and a lot of times from other countries, uh, like I went and took an uh, insect entomopathogen course up at Cornell. Um, and I think there are people there from like 17 countries. Um, and most of them were researchers from universities. Um, I'm always the weird person out because I'm, you know, an independent person. Um, I, yeah, cause I just, it tends to be university people. The, um, the hemp and cannabis Western working group meeting I was at, which was amazing, amazing. Um, all the different research, especially on the pathogens. Oh my gosh, I learned so much about hops, lead, and viroid. It's super scary, but super interesting. Um, it was like me and a bunch of you know university people there. Um, so that's generally who um, I'm there with is other univer- well, it's university people. So. 
by the way, Sunny in the chat said that my, I might be thinking of citrus spider mites, and that's actually plausible. I'm just looking it up here. That might be what I was thinking of. Versus, let's say, oh, is it the same thing as the two-spotted spider mite? Well, I would. Mm -mm. Oh, I no, would you're probably that. thinking about European red mite and two-spot spider mite that they thought they were two different, and they actually had two different scientific names. But now that they've done the genetics on them, um, it's one species. Huh. Interesting. Well, exactly the opposite. Well, cheers. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. Here. Uh, go ahead. Just uh, you said you were going to be in Massachusetts. Uh, where and when? So, if you don't mind me asking, I'm in Mass. James. Uh, oh, yeah. That's okay. Uh, yeah, we're going to be in Massachusetts February 17th, 18th, and 19th in uh, Sturbridge, which is about an hour. Right down the street from me. Oh, awesome. Yes, I think it's yeah, like 45 it, minutes or an hour west of Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. A little closer than that. I'm from Boston, but I live close to the Sturbridge now. I'm about 20 minutes, half hour away. Nice. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Suzanne's day will be February 20th, but we are still working on the details of where that's going to be at. Um, as far as I know, I that's not Suzanne's end. Yeah, I, Suzanne's working on getting that together. Sorry, <laughs> I just went and had to check the score of the game. Man, Philly's cleaned up tonight. Anybody Good watching thing. baseball? Oh, Seven yeah. to zero. Um, I mean, it was, and, uh, uh, wow. Before I forget, um, there are early bird tickets on sale for the next month for $50 off. Um, I guess, you know, since we're on a podcast, I will, um, I'll get a code up tonight for $100 off for the next two days. When does this go up? Do you mean, is this live right now? This is live right now, but I'll probably edit up the actual podcast. Oh, fuck, I forgot to record. All right, whatever. I'll download it and record the podcast tomorrow. So it'll probably be uh, tomorrow or Wednesday the podcast goes up. All right. Well, I'll put I'll put a code up tonight, which uh, we'll just make it fumador. We'll make it fumador, and I'll make a hundred dollars off for the next couple of days. Um, and uh, early bird tickets are on sale for the next month. Anybody who buys an early bird ticket, um, you'll get a little extra bonus at the conference. Awesome. Cheers. You heard the man. Is there a website? Yeah. Organiccultivators.net is where you can get more information on the lineup. Um, Dr. James White uh, will be there speaking on the rise of phagy cycle. He's kind of the guy that Jeff Lowenfels um, worked with to write his new book. And uh, of course, Suzanne will be there and Wendy and uh, Dan Kittredge and a bunch of people. But yeah, all the information is on the website and you can get tickets there as well. I'm guessing... I mean, I've, I've gone to, the, there's a tattoo convention in Sturbridge I've gone to. And I've actually, is it this, like where in Sturbridge? Uh, it's at the Sturbridge Host Hotel and you guys can get rooms there uh, for a discounted rate if you just call and mention organic cultivators. But yeah, Sturbridge is a dope town. It's pretty cool. Right off of I-84, actually. I'm trying to think, Sturbridge Host yeah, Hotel yeah. Conference yeah. Center or something like that. They have a tattoo convention every year. Art, RN tattoos. That's the spot. Where the McDonald's I'm going there. Steel Chips, Sturbridge Village, fifth grade, back in 1973. Uh, yeah, last year was our first year. Suzanne was a speaker. She killed it. She actually, the slide she was talking about with the fungus snats, um, uh, she actually uh, showed that slide uh, at last year's conference. Um, but uh yeah so this year will be a lot of fun we've changed it up and added new speakers and 
and more time. And a lot of those discussions are audience led. So like Dan, he'll be taking questions for a whole bunch of time uh, before he even starts speaking. So um, if you guys end up going, I highly recommend going to the YouTube channel, watching his first talk so you can uh, pick his brain uh, for round two. Ah. That's the man right there. Super cool. Looks super interesting. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, Suzanne, uh, had a delightful interview. Uh, I, I assume you probably want to start getting going. So I wanted to maybe wrap up with a couple of questions. Uh, how do you see our cannabis industry from the outside? And, you know, a bunch of us, you see, how do I say this? We have traditional market, you know, commercial market, home growers, everybody, even on the panel and the chat. So it's a, it's a broad scene, but how do you see us? Hey, nice. <laughs> I, we're part of it. Remember, Wendy and I are part of it. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's interesting. I actually kind of, after coming back from um, this research conference in uh, the Colorado State a couple weeks ago, with again, getting together with all these researchers who are, you know, working a lot on disease and insects and stuff, I actually it changed my perspective a lot about the overall let's talk about cannabis genus or specific epithet, you know, of a crop and, and really how it's kind of broken into three crops. Really, you have, you know, a fiber crop, you have a smokable, consumable crop, and then you also have like an edible crop and that whole market that's starting to develop for, um, for seed, for consumable as a replacement for soybean. I honestly didn't know much about that. And boy, I learned a lot about that. that was super interesting. Um, and, you know, we kind of decided that for the pro they're trying to lump regulations on these three groups kind of together and that they really regulatory, all three need to be really separated out um, because, you know, growing 5,000 acres of hemp fiber is not growing craft cannabis living soil and, you know, a quarter acre greenhouse kind of. It's a very different situation. And the regulations as far as pesticide use, which, you know, soaps and oils and that stuff are pesticides, too. And we all know we do need those chemistries um, should all be different um, for the different crops. And I, I think that looking at the cannabis industry, because I mean, it, it's not like I hadn't been exposed to cannabis growers before, because being an entomologist, you get a lot of calls from a lot of people through the years. Um, I, I think that um, getting egos in check would definitely help the industry a lot and to have a little more humbleness. Um, and that I think that Realizing you can learn from other agriculture industries that, you know, traditional ag is not the enemy um, and that there may be things in that industry that might help you improve. And the flip side, too, because I do have to say because of us not using pesticides often in uh, consumable cannabis, um, I have had to get a lot better at sanitation protocol, understanding vectoring stuff. and as I've grown in that knowledge, I've been able to take that back to my ornamental and vegetable people and it's helped them grow. And I think the idea of not 
poo-pooing each other and that taking the best from all the industries so we can all be better at our jobs and reduce our, our, you know, environmental, I mean, you know, what, what we're doing to the planet, I think is, is critical. Um, and you know, all working together so we can all get better, I think is, is an important thing to do because everybody has something to contribute. Um, but I just have to be careful with the cannabis guys and I'll listen to anybody's product. They want to, you know, give me the spiel on, but they do think that there's this misconception that there's a ton of money in cannabis, which it seems like it with all the money flowing around. But at the end of the day, you're a farmer, like everybody else, you're just growing a different crop and everybody needs to you know, make payroll at the end of the week with their employees, or if you're growing for yourself, grow a good quality plant. And we have to be economical about it and um, be smart about the science and just don't believe everything you hear. Because if someone comes to you and says, well, I've got a pesticide that only kills bad bugs, but it won't kill good bugs. I mean, pesticides are not sentient. They can't make that decision. Um, you know, a lot of times if you say to people, you know, name a beneficial insect, they'll be like praying mantis. You know, for me, you know, often the mantis you see are Chinese mantids. They're not native. They're big pollinator feeders. To me, I don't really have them on my good guy list. So it's a matter of perspective. Um, if you have massive spider mite problems, you know, you might be OK with some Western flower thrips because Western flower thrips actually feed on two spot spider mites. So in that situation, they were beneficial. But if you're growing a floriculture crop and they can vector viruses, well, you don't want a single Western flower thrips. So this this perception of, you know, if an insect or mite is good and bad, it, it depends on you and products aren't sentient to make that decision. And unfortunately, I think because cannabis people want to believe the best in people, they'll believe what they're told. And I think it's really important to go through a lot of critical thought processes to think about what you're being told. And does this really make sense? Is this really possible? And if someone says this product does this, where is some data to prove it? I, I was recently shown um, a pesticide um, that was trying trying to get its way into the cannabis market and on on their website, they have their research section. Literally, their trial was one plant. They sprayed one plant and killed 50% of two-spot spider mites, and they considered that good. No control, no nothing. And I mean, that's just not, that is not any kind of science at all. So you need to ask tough questions of these products and, um, you know, make sure that you're not you know, being taken advantage of, because unfortunately I see it in the cannabis industry more than anywhere else um, with these products. But I think everybody's intentions are good. Um, it's one of the more caring industries, I think. Um, I mean, I think you guys are great to hang out with. I, I, I'm not great because I can't be around cannabis smoke. I start coughing like I'm dying of lung disease. So I always have to run back to my room and hide at night. Um, but I really enjoy the people and I've met some amazing, Wendy and James, I'll do anything for them. Um, I've met some of the great people through this industry. So, um, yeah, I just think the cannabis industry needs more critical thinking. I was, how, how do I integrate that? I was going to say we need more critical thinking, but on the bright side, we have Wendy and James, the Nina Simone of the cannabis industry, no, of agriculture, something like that. I don't know. It's a work in progress. All right. Uh, let's see here. What's oh, my that? God. I mean, we were feeling all hard fluttery over Suzanne saying she'd do everything for us, but man, dropping some shit like that. I don't know that we can live up to that. 
God damn it, dude. I got to sleep tonight. What are you doing to me? <laughs> Suzanne, if you could wave a magic wand. Excuse me. Speaking of smoking. If you could wave a magic wand and be anybody else for six months, who would you be? Maybe E.O. Wilson or Dave Suzuki. I'm not sure I know either of those people. Okay, so E.O. Wilson, who recently passed away, is probably one of the most famous entomologists of our time. Um, He was a great environmentalist. I actually think his microscopes at the Smithsonian. Um, And he wrote many books on social insects. I mean, he's like a god in the insect world. And to be inside of his brain, to know what he knew would be unbelievable. And David Suzuki is an environmentalist from Canada. Um, And when I was... When I was a wee wee little thing, my mom bought me um, a, a, an insect book by David Suzuki, and I was just blown away. Wow, you can figure out the temperatures by counting cricket chirps and all of that. And I still have that book. I cherish that book um, and, you know, the environmental work he's done. And I actually, this is really embarrassing. I actually got the opportunity to meet him, brought my book for oh, an autograph. I started falling so hard i couldn't even speak i was like oh book side i love you you changed my life and you know he had no idea and i'm sure he has no idea the impact <laughs> he has had on me um but yeah i have that signed book to this day um because yeah. that book really is another thing that has gotten me and it's crazy to think as a kid a little paper book can change your life but it can no, that's a common thing. I keep reading all these stories about like uh, Carl Sagan or, or Richard Feynman or all these different people who would basically just be talking on NBC or something. And they would encourage like little boys and girls around the country to become like an astronomer or something. You know, it's just absolutely fascinating how that stuff works. I mean, that's really how anyone gets an interest in something. They, they I don't know if they have like a spark. I mean, I suppose you can just basically follow a path that leads you somewhere in life. But if you like you said, you became an entomologist. Basically, you knew that you wanted to become one many, many, many years ago. And it probably was because of some kind of a spark that you saw in your life. Isn't that a lot of times you see a lot of people go family like the family method. But then there's then there's certain views that do totally something different. You know, there's there's going to be that, I guess you could say, because like I could have been a worker like my dad, but I I didn't want to do that. You know, I, I like the soil. I've been thinking about going back to school for soil science. Like I have UMass Amherst really close to me um, and it's an amazing place. <laughs> well, and, and the frustrating, I think for me, and I think times have changed because I was in the high school in the eighties and my guidance counselor basically kind of patted me on the head and it's like, maybe you should be like a school teacher. Cause you know, girls don't really, you know, do entomology. And, you know, I, as, as, as James and Wayne would tell you, I'm a rule follower. I mean, I'm. I'm well, they normally don't kick ass either, but you're going to see it right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> but I think being told I could not do something and, um, you know, you? I'm, I'm not smart enough to do it and it's not the right career path for me. Um kind of pushed me more in addition to just my love for insects and love for the environment. And I think the combination of all the things, but it's just frustrating to me because I think about how many other people have been, you get the spark, but then one person can tell you don't do that. Cause I mean, honestly, 
my parent, my mom is like, yeah, never dreamed my daughter would grow up to be like an entomology consultant. You know, I mean, what kind of job is, I mean, she's proud of me. Don't get me wrong. And she's been there very supportive, but you know, it's not a, a normal job. I mean, people are like you do what? And so I think that with kids, if you can dream the dream and you're committed and willing to put the work in, you can, you can have any job that you want if you're willing to do it. Um, but you got to put the work in. I think the school should like encourage more. Like it's kind of, it's kind of sad because they, they kind of teach you like when I was in school, it's pretty much just follow a book. There was no real, like if teacher, sometimes you would get a good teacher that sparked your interest in something like I love biology because of my teacher. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I had a couple really, really good science teachers. Uh, Lynn Kavistic was my fifth grade science teacher and she had us do every week a, a science report and we had to do the scientific method and we had to go through the whole thing. And that really, I think taught us a thought process learning skill. And this was fifth grade. And she was teaching us basic Latin prefixes and suffixes. And so she really kind of like gave me that early foundation gateway into science. Um, and believe me, I have tried to find Lynn Kavistic from Charlottesville, Virginia, and I cannot find her because again, she's one of those teachers that was a huge influence in the sense of giving me a really good science foundation in fifth grade and learn to be a critical thinker. Trying to look something up here and it took me a little bit too long to do so. Uh, okay, here we go. Let's see, I just found it. So it was apparently Nietzsche that said this, but I don't know. Here it is. Uh, okay, roll with me because the way my brain works when I'm high, this is, this is how it is. You're welcome, ladies and gentlemen. So apparently Nietzsche said, I, this is not according to Hoyle because I just literally found this on the internet right here. I was just Googling it. But according to Nietzsche, finally, my brothers, uh, beware of doing wrong to any hermit. How could a hermit forget? How could he repay? Like a deep well is a hermit. It's easy to throw in a stone, but if the stone sank to the bottom, tell me who would get it out again. Beware of insulting the hermit. But if you have done so, well, then kill him too. Uh, basically, because that stone, sort of the, the metaphor is that stone will just grow and grow and grow and grow in that well. And where I was going to with that is uh, saying negative things to somebody. So just like something can spark you, you should be aware. And I try to be very aware of ever insulting someone or ever saying, oh, that's fucking dumb or anything like that. Or you shouldn't do that because uh, it's like a well. For, it's like a stone in the well for the hermit. Basically, it can grow and grow and grow. And in moments of self-doubt, when someone when inevitably, as they're learning something, struggles or finds problems or whatever, they might basically grow that stone in that well with that thought like, oh, you're not good enough to do this or you're too stupid or that's a stupid idea. You know what I mean? I don't know. Perhaps that was a, again, thanks to the weed. The weed is good. But uh, in the meantime, don't insult a hermit. Uh, what was I going to say? Suzanne, honestly, I I've, have gone through basically all my, I was going to ask you about trophic layers, but it's, I think also late for you. So, I mean, if you're willing to, we can talk about trophic layers, but you do have, I think you said a flight in the morning. Well, I, I don't have, well, it's kind of in the morning, but I actually have a little bit of work to get done. Um, it's almost 1230 on my coast. You have more than, uh, how do I say this? This has been one of the, the most enjoyable interviews that I've done because how do I say this? Um, I don't know. Almost all of it was very new to, I think, all of us. Frankly, I don't think anyone 
understands the depth of uh, uh, research that you've done. And, and honestly, the, the depth of the lack of research that most of us have done. Like you said, honestly, every one of us knows probably what you're talking about, those photos, because all of us have done. I know for sure that I've seen those photos because I got root aphids, whatever, six years ago or something. And I for sure looked on Google, you know, like what's a root aphid, you know, root aphid versus fungus gnat, because you have that wishful thinking at first, like, oh, it's just fungus gnats. But so you're trying to figure out which one it is. And we've all been misinformed, basically. So it's really, it's, uh, it would be hilarious if it wasn't so painful sometimes, because, you know, like all of us have gone through that. But I don't know. We've all been misinformed by bullshit. Well, it's interesting. So I just, for shits and giggles, I threw in root aphids and I'm just looking at images. And so the images that come up are root aphids, but almost none of them are uh, rice root aphid. It's a, they're, again, there are numerous uh, root aphid species. Um, and I actually like in ornamentals, I see cabbage root aphid. And it's funny because that cabbage root aphid often is taken for um cannabis articles um on there um so that's what you've just got to be careful of um on there it's gotten better um on some of the stuff but it's still uh yeah i'm just looking at these images it's still not great it's it's slowly coming uh on there and also just for rice root aphid management, just so you know, nematodes don't work, rove beetles don't work, don't spend all your money on that stuff. You're just wasting time um, doing that, that at this point in time and things can change. Um, and that's why it's important to keep up with information because recommendations I even made five years ago have changed because I've learned more. There's newer products on the market, but basically microbial management using you know, Bavaria cordyceps, or now since uh, metarhizium is going to be coming back on the market, the um, granular pre-incorporation metarhizium is going to be a game changer for the cannabis industry. Suzanne, is there um, is there anywhere that you recommend people go get information since there's so much bad information on the internet? Is there a place to go that they should go or a person that they should be listening to? Um. So I think from university standpoints, I think Colorado State, Whitney Cranshaw, um, he has very good stuff. His stuff is going to be a little more hemp oriented because he was with the state, but his stuff is very solid. He and I published um, a Rudy Fit paper together um, with, at the time, the most current information um, that we had available. Um, you should also be following uh, like Dr. Katie Britt uh, at UC. See Riverside. Um, she and some of her colleagues received a million dollar research grant for pests of hemp and cannabis. Um, and so this first past year, uh, Katie, um, which full disclosure, she's a good friend of mine. Um, we talk like once a week. Um, they've been just surveying the state to see what all pests are in cannabis in California. So they and hemp, so they have an idea. And then they're going to be doing more trials. She's already done work. Uh, trial work on hemp russet mite. She's done, um, she's actually done quite a bit of work on caterpillars, which are a very uh, <clears throat> important key pass and actually using um, viruses for management. Um, she did that work when she was at Virginia Tech. She's a good source and there will be more coming available um, through that university website. Um, I do think as far as insectaries go, um, 
I, I think beneficial insectary does have the strongest background in cannabis because of the employees they have. Um, they've recently hired Cody Seals, who did his master's work on pests in um, hemp and is super knowledgeable um, on research, science, and also growing, um, as well as I mentioned before, Saul Alba, who was a grower for many years. Um, and I think because they have been there, they've had the growing experience, um, they understand the plight a lot of growers are going through. So I know that beneficial insectary is trying to get better information available, but they kind of have the same problem I have. We're so busy out in the field, you don't have time to just you know, create content, even though they do have a social media manager and they've been putting out some uh, pretty good content on social media. Um, so I think they're another good resource. Um, um, oh, not Parwinder. Parwinder's an hematologist. Um, oh my gosh, I can see his name. He's from Simon Fraser University. Um, he's an amazing plant pathologist. Um, oh my gosh, his, his name just fell out of my head and I just had dinner with him. Um, gosh. Um, if you do like cannabis plant pathologist, Simon Fraser University, he's out in BC, you'll find another really good one um, to be following his work um, because of, of the research he's doing. Are you coming up with it, James? Are you Googling fast for me? No, I wasn't. Oh, I thought for sure you're going to be Googling. To get Nobody was too. Yeah. Well, the, the advantage he has over Jana, even Jana is an amazing plant pathologist. She's at Purdue, uh, Dr. Beckerman. Um, I actually just saw, we were at another meeting in Raleigh last week um, at another entomology pathology meeting. Um, she's a little limited to hemp and she probably has the best working knowledge of all the pathogens out there because of so many hemp samples coming in from around the country. Um, the guy at Simon Fraser being in Canada, his research is actually on cannabis because he's in Canada and he's allowed to do that. <clears throat> and the surveys they've done for disease and virus um, up in Canada have been Dr. pretty Poonja. epic. I'm sorry? Is it Dr. Punja? Yep, Dr. Punja. There you That's go, it. Zamir Punja. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. In fact, I kind of through past him about maybe us doing a book together and he did not say no because uh, i can't do the disease side of things. Book. and you know wendy and i've been up your ass about that for a while um Tad's so everyone email suzanne and tell her to write a book because she needs to write a write a book send her your blurry uh bug photos so they can be included in uh in the book and uh yeah i i i've believe Suzanne needs to write a book because as far as we're concerned, she is someone who is um, at the forefront of boots on the ground when it comes to IPM in cannabis. And uh, there's nobody else we'd rather talk to when it comes to this stuff. Um, and uh, she won't badmouth people, but if you want to know the people you're not supposed to listen to, you come talk to me and I'll tell you. You aim high, you aim low. Together, yeah. beat the enemy. Well, I hope, I, I, what I like to say is we've drawn a line in the sand. We've drawn a line in the sand. We're holding everyone accountable, including ourselves. No, there's an epic amount of charlatan shitheads, honestly. And yeah. I don't, you know, how do I say this? Even from the outside of the cannabis, we don't have to get into details, but from the outside of the cannabis industry, honestly, because I wouldn't consider myself even part of it, frankly, uh, you still get slapped by shitheads. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It, it's very, very, very challenging to avoid 
uh, charlatans, obvious fakes. Flora and I have talked about this. There's so many. If you know a little bit, you can kind of recognize them. But a lot of people don't really have maybe that kind of savvy. I don't know. Or maybe they haven't seen those people in other fields. There's so many obvious charlatans and you want to say something because in many other industries, those people are called out, not in all industries, but still, I don't know. Well, I, that's something else too, is look to see if they work in other industries. Yeah. And I, I think mean, that's, the, things to, the easiest things to do is, you know, if, um, see how much of a following they have cultivated and compare that to the work they've actually done. Because if you have, you know, a shit ton of followers, that means you've been spending a lot of time cultivating that following and maybe not doing the work. And that may not be the case for everybody, but that's um, going to be the case. A paradox for in this modern life, you know, uh, thankfully, Facebook has plummeted their, their share price. Well, if anyone in this chat is now suddenly poor because of that, I doubt it. But still, there's hope that Facebook could collapse. Probably not much hope, but there's still some hope anyway. There's a chance. Well, the one thing I didn't know, and I guess this was my naiveness, um, because I have a friend of mine who's a social media marketing manager for a completely different. She works in the medical stuff. She's like, oh, wow, because I was showing her some account. I'm like, how did this guy get so many followers? And she's like, oh, he probably just buys them. I'm like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, you can buy. I'm like, ha, I didn't even know that was a thing. I don't think it's even that hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't know that was. Uh, um, but. Again, I mean, investing in cameras and invest in some followers. That's it. It's not, it's not, oh, well, that last lens you just bought, fuck, just return it, return it. Spend fifteen hundred bucks on. They actually have they have different quality. You can I looked into this. You can buy different uh, levels of followers. You can buy followers that are literally just bots, and that's the lowest, apparently the cheapest. Like and then you can actually, yeah, you can actually get real interactors, and that does something different. I actually don't remember what it does. Well, I guess it just looks different, basically, because it's an actual human being. And you have these people that literally have like a bank of like phones in front of them. They're just fucking interacting with like, like dislike, which is random shit, right? Just following followers. Like, oh, I got to look up so-and-so's follow on Facebook and click on a couple things. It is a oh, weird. Now I've got to look it? and see on my page. Um, I don't even know how many followers I have on Instagram, but I've earned every single one. I am up to thirteen thousand followers. How do you I've know that every you single didn't one? Buy one of them with candy. What if? What if you bribed one of them with your clear? I bet you did. That's fair though. She made it candy. It's hot. It's sticky. You can get burned. If, I mean, if it is a fair candy, bribe. Honestly, I guess that's. I, it is a fair bribe. It's true. Oh, <laughs> Bribable with soda, I so I, I understand. Didn't ask for a bribe. Fuck off. I'm terrible at this. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, what are you going to do? So from now on, we're going to say that. Ye of crappy social media fandoms, thou art legit. So <laughs> the, the, the less legit your social media, the more legit you are. That's how we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, and again, I think the thing... You know, cannabis, and it was funny because before this, and I didn't even get to go back and read it, there was a discussion in a cannabis group we had about research because cannabis growers like, well, you know, I researched this. I'm like, well, like you kind of did a literature research or a literature search, but not research it because I think people have to be very careful with that term because to me, research kind of implies that, you know, you set up a trial, you did all this stuff. And, you know, for for a researcher before they do the actual research, they do a literature search and a literature search goes and searches all the scientific journals for all the information and brings it to you and you read them. And that's a fine way to get educated. 
as long as using quality sourced journals, because we all know there's the problem in some areas of pay to play and pay to publish and all of that, because they're not peer reviewed journals and stuff. But, um, you know, when somebody presents, you know, data and it's like, well, did you generate this data? Because that's what I'm seeing. People are taking other researchers data and presenting and they're not saying, hey, I did this work but they're presenting it like they did that work. And um, I have, in my career, I feel it is very important for me to elevate the researchers and talk about the researchers and give them credit. And I will never take credit for any researchers research. I will always give them credit. And same thing with images. I mean, I would say 99.99% of images are mine. And if it's not mine, I will state, I got this from this person. And everybody's assuming that if you post it, that it's your content and nobody's calling and questioning these people. So, you know, if, if you are questioning, I mean, if you're unsure if somebody actually did the research part or if it's just a literature search and you're summarizing, ask them. Um, and especially when it comes to the photos, because there's one particular person that just uses everybody else's photos and he, everybody assumes they're his and they're not. Ask him what f stop he took him at. Ask him what ISO. Did you do that with a with a, a manual slider or with a stack shot? That watch them just blank up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because yeah, especially, I mean, I know we always have to be vague about because I, as a consultant, I'd be very protective of my customers. I mean, some of these non disclosures, I had to sign a nine page non disclosure for one of my customers. Really? Um, yeah, it's outside of the cannabis industry. It's a, a biotech kind of thing, but. What are they yes. worried about? What are they worried? Are they, are they worried about their competition knowing that they have problems or what? Not problems, what they're actually working mm-hmm. on. Oh. It's a lot of genetics, a lot of, and to be, to me, honest, everything looks the same to me. That plant looks like that plant and that looks like that plant because mm-hmm. I'm just there for the bugs. Um, but you know, that you will not remove any plant material. You will not tell anybody what you're working on, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, as a consultant, I generally don't post pictures right when they happen. Um, and I've kind of shied away from posting people's problems in a way because I'm always terrified it's somehow going to track back because someone will be like, oh, I recognize that bench. And I know that's at that facility. And you have to be so careful about that stuff um, as a consultant because, I mean, I, I feel like I'm like, you know, they're priest for their confessionals sometimes because they have to tell me everything they're doing in order for me to help them. And I'm not there to be judgmental. I'm there to help them. And yes, if you did go in and spray pylon, I need you to have know. have a plan for a tax-free setup, actually. You could be the church of the bug lady. Um, <laughs> you absolve them. I absolve you of your Satan, hail, ants, or no hail, persimilis. <laughs> but it's, it's um, you just do have to be very careful <laughs> Big fan. with, <laughs> with with what you post and that's why Thank i don't really. post quite as much because i'm trying to protect my customers privacy um too and that's why you don't see tons of you know issues then i'm always worried like oh my god did, did the metadata get scrubbed because like with the dslrs and the phones they all have gps coordinates in it and you know so it there's a couple of uh, apps that you can buy actually for that. Uh, one of them is uh, you might actually like this because you probably uh, uh, take a ton of photos on your trips. Is uh, why can't I think of this fucking uh, 
uh, blanking on it right I'm now. Ready with my pen. I know it's, and it's like literally blanking on me right now. It's it'll come to me. Uh, photo mechanic, photo mechanic. Is that what it's called? Photo mechanic. Uh, a lot of like like wedding photographers. Let me see. Photo mechanic. A lot of wedding photographers use this one. I think it's called photo mechanic, and they use it literally for approving you know, and disapproving photos. So, for example, if they take like ten thousand photos in a day, which would be normal, they only really need two hundred of those photos, and they're not going to sift through. So, they basically just go and they X through them. But also, you can batch apply, so you can essentially batch apply like remove metadata. So, boom, just like that. Yeah, that's because I I, I I don't want to air people's dirty line. I mean, some people sure. You know, but for the most part, no, I, I try to protect my customers and, and what they're doing. And, and that's part of being a consultant is you don't air your customers' problems. So, I mean, that's like the plot of some kind of a mystery movie that, you know, the, the, the source of the, so you, I don't know, the, the secret bank code for a Swiss vault or something was discovered by the entomologist that went in the greenhouse. <laughs> Anyway, we're getting goofy at this uh, uh, late hour. Uh, I don't know, guys, any, have any other questions? I don't know. She's still here. She's still goofing off with us. Ryan? Ryan is the one of us that is, like I say, we have different types of people that come on the show. Ryan's the one that's had, uh, I would say, like farm-level cannabis experiences from like huge acre hemp facilities and stuff like that. Right, Ryan? Is me using diatomaceous earth a lot bad for everything? I mean, I know I'm fucking up every. I'm fucking up everything, but is it uh, is it the worst I could be doing? Oh no, there's a lot worse things you could be doing, but the efficacy just hasn't really been there. Also, from a human safety standpoint, you do not want to breathe that stuff in um, and get that into your lungs. And again, going back to if if it was a good um, insecticide, why aren't other why aren't farms using it? out there really it's it's not it's it's funny i didn't i mean i knew about diatomaceous earth but i didn't really come across it a lot until cannabis growers i use it in a wettable spray too so i don't anything well you got to be careful so there was a product gosh this was about this was the late 90s um and i didn't physically do it but i was a bit involved with the field trials of this where they it was a spray diatomaceous earth and the idea was to spray it and it would shred the insects problem they found out is it damaged the leaf cuticles and because just like it cuts insects, it can do it to leaves and can damage the leaf surface. And it did not come to market because it was it was too damaging to plants. Point taken. Thank you. Hmm? I forgot to ask you something, and I am fully prepared for probably your answer that's going to be harmful. But uh, is there such thing as super spider mites? And I guess what I mean by that is I have perpetuated the idea that somehow the spider mites that I got were not just normal to spider, spider mites, but these were the, the miracle board ones that were somehow resistant to 15 or 20 other pesticides that I'd gotten from some clone that I'd got. Is that, is that a thing? Does that exist? Yeah, exactly. Like uh, multiple drug resistant, kind of like MRSA or something, spider mites. Is that a thing? So there are... Uh, populations of certain insects and mites that are resistant to certain chemistries. Um, probably um, the most famous one to look at is actually with white flies. Um, we have Bamesia uh, tobacco, which is um, 
the, the silver leaf white fly. Now there's 25 different biotypes. Um, and basically you have to look at the genetics, but what the kind of difference is, is different pesticides kill the different biotypes. And Q is the most famous one that almost no traditional chemistries, like it's resistant to imidacloprid and dinotepuran and orethene and bifenthrin and a lot of things. So you absolutely can have those populations. What they have found though, is over time, if the insects or mites are not exposed to those chemistries, they can develop susceptibility back. And that's what they did down in Florida um, because spinosad was so heavily used in the pepper industry. Um, they were trying to control pepper weevil that um, the Western flower thrips became resistant to it. So they actually pulled the label from several counties in Florida for a couple of years and wouldn't allow the use of spinosad in those counties. So those populations didn't have exposure to the chemistry so that the product would work again. The thing is, though, with soaps and oils, you're not going to build resistance to them because they're a mechanical kill. And this is why um, in Florida, predatory mites are so popular for spider mite management is because you don't have to worry about your spider mite, your two spot spider mite population and what it's resistance to because persimilis doesn't care if you're resistant to avid or, you know, pylon or orthene, it's still just going to eat you. I remember, I don't remember which podcast, but I remember you saying that years ago, saying uh, there's no resistance to being eaten. Yep, I have t-shirts <laughs> that say that. That's um, awesome. And yeah, I work with, you know, these several hundred acre tropical foliage growers in Florida. And, you know, we're putting out persimilis every two weeks on the, the Diffenbachias and the palms and everything, because, you know, when you have those resistance problems, you can spray every three days with traditional chemistries and you still can't get ahead of the population and there's just not enough modes of action for the rotation. And that's why oils have been so popular. And that's why the stuff oil X has been so popular. Cause if you get, you have resistant populations of mites, it just, it just works. Um, and so, you know, and the crazy thing is I don't understand is growers, especially see this with avid, um, it's a miticide. It doesn't kill eggs though. It only kills immatures and adults is some will spray it and it doesn't work. So they'll spray it again and it still doesn't work. And then they'll spray it again. And it's amazing to me how people will apply products over and over again, even when they know they don't work, um, hoping that they're going to work, which they just need to stop reevaluate the situation. And if you have a resistant population, you need to look at products. Um, that's that called are insanity. Be yes. It's like a cargo cult. It's like a different result. Is insanity. Yeah. But also I think when, when it comes to sometimes when people say they have resistant populations and I get there, um, it could be that the pH of your water is not right because P, uh, pesticides can be pH dependent. Also, I find people are not using proper spray equipment and so they're not getting the right spray coverage or the right particle sizes out. So there's lots of reasons why a chemistry might not work and it might not be resistance management. And that's my job is to figure out why the products aren't working. And what a small enough molecule or big enough molecule in the well, it's not the, the molecule, it's the droplet size, and that has to do with questions. PSI internally in the sprayer. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, 
uh, you well, know, some if can you, work with an atomizer and some can work with a plotter and some can work with just a little sprayer. Is that correct? Well, a lot of people go by to Home Depot and buy like backpack and pump up sprayers, but those are oftentimes designed for herbicides. And with herbicides, you want larger, heavier particles. So there's no spray drift. So they just fall down because you don't want your herbicides drifting. When it comes to applying something like stuff oil X, you want it in a fine aerosol mist, again, with high pressure. So like the Dram backpack sprayer is amazing with stuff oil X. And you can get that fine mist because you don't want to spray to runoff with that. You just spray to mist. And if you get those tiny, tiny particles, then they can coat the eggs. And that's why it works so well on hemp russet mite too, because not only are the stuff oil X particles so small, but also the sprayer you're using um, is putting it out at a very fine mist level. So you can, get, you can penetrate the, the, the plant as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, with a better wand. But then you also have to make sure your wand doesn't turn into a vector for mites and pathogens. So be very cautious about where you're sticking your wand. Another reason to keep your equipment clean. That's nice. Yep. We were having a problem down in the Dominican mm. Republic with um, a, a bacterial <laughs> problem and what they were doing is when they were spraying they would stick it into the plant canopy and then pull it out and then go do the next one but the wand was actually vectoring between the plants so we actually were then dipping the wand head into a disinfectant between um each of the stock plants to stop the spread of the bacterial infection just thinking about just now um, it's, I don't know how I say this. It's kind of embarrassing because frankly, I was, I was, I don't know, it's like a year ago, frankly, thankfully I've gotten rid of them already, but, uh, I basically struggled with spider mites for probably 10 or 11 months. And every single time it was like a crazy person. I basically approached the, the situation like, oh, I've gotten rid of them. And then two weeks later or something, you know, sure enough, basically like week seven of flower, I would see spider mites, basically. Uh, I kept almost eradicating the problem, almost, almost, almost. And it just persisted through all kinds of different attempts. And I like to think I'm not a stupid person. <laughs> I like to think I'm analytical and everything else, but it persisted forever. It was the most frustrating situation. What kind of stuff were you using? I'm hippy dippy in the sense that I have like a living soil garden. So I actually wasn't using any, I guess that was one complication. I wasn't using any pesticides. I was using, well, no, no hard pesticides. I was using stuff like self oil X. Well, self oil X, mm. according to the federal government, is an Should've EPA worked. registered pesticide. Yeah. But worked. it could have come down to your sprayer and spray coverage because it does work. Again, I have a, a, a greenhouse operation that they're now the greenhouse. The greenhouse is almost 200 acres. Um, and we use it for mite management on like bedding plants and things like that. And it works extremely well. But again, you got to get the spray coverage and the right particle size. Yeah. The other thing I would ask you, you run a lot of companion plants in your garden. You have like a, a lot of it's not really an indoor garden. Yeah. yeah, like clover and stuff. It's really easy to miss uh, bugs when you're spraying and you have all those other little plants in there. Oh, I so. see what you mean, red clover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, I didn't have any. Now I actually do. And ironically, now I don't have the spider mites anymore. But uh, uh, at the time, basically, because I kept having these fucking problems, I stopped having cover crops. I stopped uh, uh, 
uh, what, what do you call it? Uh, leaf drop mulching, basically. So I stopped, you know, when I uh, uh, defoliate, stopped mulching the, the, the soil. That, right that I didn't is want to spider mites. so painful for me. I, uh, from an entomology and a pathology standpoint, I mean, it would be like, oh, I'm going to have my foot decapitated, but let me just keep it in my house with me because, you know, that's a good thing to do. I'm really like, how do you get, I mean, how do you get, so I understand the point because it is basically potentially, if you have a pathogen, you're basically going to basically farm it. You're going to multiply it. But how else are you going to have a conventional mulch layer? How are you going to have like in a living soil? And I grow organically, not in cocoa or anything else. I'm trying to actually grow in a self-perpetuating living soil. How do I get the soil carbon, the soil ecosystem basically that I want? Compost it, heat it to a high enough to kill pathogens, and then bring it back. It makes sense. Makes I mean, sense. Th- that's. I mean, it's. It's again. This is like the only place I see this. And again, if you're fighting any kind of insect, again, one spider mite—that's a mite—but in one aphid, and you drop that leaf, it's just you're going to perpetuate the problem. And from a pathogen standpoint, because what's been very interesting, especially like hops laden viroid. It doesn't, you can be positive and have zero symptoms. And until the plant decides it's stressed and wants to express, you don't even know it. And so how do you know? And, you know, all these other viruses they're now finding, um, which I was kind of surprised at the the virus list I saw that they pulled out of plants in Canada. And just because it's in Canada, do not think for a second it's not here. Because you know plants are going back. I mean, and that's forth that's one countries. of the kind of jokes on this show. Basically, we talk about uh, uh, people bring up genetic drift or something. We mentioned like genetic drift isn't really a thing, not at least how people understand it. But rather, your plants can be totally infected with viruses, and that's mm-hmm. pretty much literally what you have. You have plants that are basically just racked with is the the equivalent of you know tuberculosis, herpes, and whatever else, and limping on through life, basically trying to make a go of it. You know, like remember Doc Holliday from. Uh, uh, that his name? Yeah, Doc Holliday from uh, 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 the Western movie. Oh, fuck it. I'll be your Huckleberry. That guy, he had ter- tuberculosis, right? He was functional, but he had tuberculosis. These fucking plants that we have, they have basically the equivalent of that limping through flower and whatever else and kind of making it, but they're basically sickly. And any little thing will tip them over into death. You know what I mean? Uh, where am I going to with that? I guess I was going to that. Uh, uh, I don't know. I've thought about, and I don't know if this is a good metaphor. I guess you'll potentially prove this, that something like hop latent is almost like a prion disease in animals. So for example, what do they have? The, the, the deer nose, the whack, I can't remember what it is, but in the East coast, there's this whole thing now where actually people are trying to avoid eating venison because many deer uh, have a prion disease. Prions are misfolded proteins. She knows this, but you know, for anyone else, they're misfolded proteins. And uh, once they interact with other proteins, they basically have a, a catastrophic uh, unfolding effect basically on those uh, uh, other proteins and they cannot almost be destroyed. So even in the soil or by burning or anything else, they basically can't be destroyed. So I've been wondering, again, maybe a bad metaphor, but if let's say you are leaf mulching and stuff like us hippy dippy freaking uh, organic growers like to do, are we just multiplying the inevitable hop latent viroid, the viruses, the, the pathogens that we don't even know about yet, the other pathogens that we have yet to discover? Um, she's probably going to say yes. Well, I mean, I'm not a plant pathologist and I'll not pretend to be one, even though I did take plant pathology in school, but it's not my area of specialty. Um, like cannabis certifications, you should already be a licensed consultant, plant pathologist. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I got up this morning. I'm a consultant. <laughs> so, um, 
The problem is, I mean, I love the idea of not having to buy stuff and being self-contained and the footprinting and everything, but indoors is not outdoors. And, you know, outside when leaves fall off the leaves, you've got UV sunlight breaking things down. You have regular overhead irrigation through rain. You have so many more factors playing into it. And it's like, only a few things get cherry picked to bring inside. Well, we're going to throw earthworms in there. Earthworms that, you know, are not native to Northeastern United States, you know, and people have this whole thing because everybody, like a cannabis grower in the Northeast asked me if they should buy Asian jumping worms for their cannabis plants the other day. I uh, about how to- Are they trains? <laughs> that would be my question. They're a huge invasive <laughs> problem, but this idea that- <laughs> Google them and you you'll freak out if you they kill everything. Um, but you know, this idea that you have to have worms to have healthy soil. Well, no, worms are not a native everywhere. And you know, this idea of we're gonna create outside inside, you you can't because so many factors are missing from this. Um and so you you have to think wisely about these decisions. Um, and I mean, I get the idea of putting the leaves, you know, down. Um, in fact, um, you know, we're, we're talking about in our yard, even our maple leaves, we do rake them up and put them in piles. But I'm like, yeah, maybe we should just mulch them all under the trees and let them break down like, you know, mother nature intended them to because it's, they're overwintering sites for beneficials and things like that. But, you know, this whole idea of we're going to bring outdoor in, I, I struggle with, um, which it's fine to, you know, have an indoor grow and reuse your soil as long as you very much know what you're doing, but don't pretend it's what's happening outside, if that makes sense. No, it's fair. Um, Can I add to that? Yes. Yeah. I'm not, I promise I won't contradict Suzanne. Except for I do want to have an in-depth discussion with you at the conference about um, worms being native to North America or not. Um, not North America, portions of Northeastern United States. Okay. Um, the thing isn't that the portions yeah, that weren't killed by glaciers, like, like killing forests and yeah, they're uh, killing the trees in Pennsylvania. Um, so the aspect of dropping stuff on your soil indoor and bringing outside inside. Um, you can do that. Um, it's a great way to grow, um, but you're going to take those risks. Um, and it's about, you know, mitigating them as much as you can. Um, for me, when I grew like that, I kept predators. I kept beneficial bugs in my grow to try to mitigate those aspects. And I still ended up dealing with thrips some point so um you know it's it's what you're prepared to deal with and if you're a small time grower uh you might be prepared to deal with a low level thrips infestation that you can manage um but if you're in a giant greenhouse or commercial operation um in an indoor setting i don't think that's a risk that's probably smart to take and um you know and as suzanne said an outdoor system is there, everything exists within that system. There's bugs that move through constantly. I mean, when we've had bugs in all of my gardening life, anytime I saw a pest in the garden, I didn't do shit about it because something always came and ate it. I never had an outbreak of anything that um, was super crazy unless, you know, it was towards the end of the season and plants were dying. Um, 
but uh yeah outside is definitely different than indoor for sure and i'm gonna jump in real quick and say good night and suzanne you have yeah, to work in the too. morning so she'll keep talking the longest, like she'll go and go and go. So yeah, we're I'm, here. I mean, we can kick her out if you like. I well, know high, we need high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we could we could send her more coke via DoorDash, I think, and keep her that's up. Right. That's right. Hey, that's that's uh, can we inject no, it intravenously no, somehow? No. I don't know. <laughs> a drip, like, maybe. I don't know. Seriously, I, you do not think I have coke stockpiled in my basement for end of times. No, I we never. Assume, no, we assume you have like a coke fridge. Yeah. Oh, you'll enjoy. Wait, what? It. I was coming oh back from Mexico one time and I was in Mexico uh, for just a couple of days and we were sitting in the, the customs line for four hours because we didn't know that you can apparently avoid some of the customs line. But we were basically coming. I think we were literally coming back on Sunday night and we didn't realize like all of Mexico works in, in, in I can't remember uh, whatever town it was in, uh, uh, Yuma. We were basically crossing back over to Yuma. By the way, the most amazing tortillas, if you ever find yourself in Yuma, Seriously, like a town that has just magical tortillas. It's really funny. Anyway, I'm quite frustrated in this freaking uh, customs line, just sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. Finally, we get to the freaking uh, border control person. I'm a little bit, you know, just frustrated because it's like 100 degrees out still, you know, 105 degrees or something. And they ask us, do you have anything to declare? And I say, no, just a bunch of Coke. Oh, and it looks at me and I say, I mean, Coca-Cola, because what I had in the back of the car was Costco three liters of Mexican Coca-Cola, flats of cans of Mexican Coca-Cola, several oh, bottles. Because a few of my friends told me, if you go to Mexico, you have to bring us back the Mexican Coca-Cola. So literally the entire oh, no. car was filled with Mexican Coca-Cola. Yeah, no, I, I actually, when I was working, I flew down to work in Grenada and I was worried I wouldn't be able to get American Coke there. So I lined the bottom of my suitcase with cans <laughs> of Coke. Uh, You're a Coke smuggler. Which, by the way, one of my cannabis growers here in Pennsylvania, I when I went there last, they actually have a Coke soda fountain in oh. their break room now. And they're like, here, you want a cup? And they're like, filled me a giant ass cup of Coke for walking around. Like, I'm like in the cannabis facility, looking at bugs, drinking Coke. Can like life get any better How than this? How insulted are you when someone offers you a Pepsi? I'm curious. Pretty insulted because that's just piss water. That's disgusting. How about seagull? Oh, shit. <laughs> <sighs> Yeah, I will say I do like a good Mountain Dew, though. I love the watermelon Mountain Dew, but Coke's Coke's my my number one. Mountain Dew's my backup. You fist fight the CEO of Pepsi if it was biggest biggest manufacturing plants of Coke. You need them. I actually got to go to Coke World in Atlanta, Georgia in September. Oh, my gosh. It was that was amazing. And actually, my hotel I stayed at because I was there. Actually, Atlanta Botanical Gardens is one of my customers, and uh, so I was there for a couple of days. But and I booked my hotel. I didn't realize my hotel room overlooked Coca Cola headquarters. It was glorious. Wow. Yeah. By the way, I was glorious. Yeah. But real quick, back to the the leaf dropping thing. Um, I I get the idea, but. You know, my job as a consultant is not to be a risk taker with somebody's facility. Um, and that is from, as James said, you know, if you've got a few plants at home, 
you know, whatever. But a lot of what I'm working with are commercial uh, uh, production. Um, the reality and- is that consultants hire you to tell them what they don't want to hear sometimes. So, for example, if they don't want to hear, you should not be fucking leaf dropping mulch and whatever other bullshit. I mean, that's why they hired you, right? Well, the funny thing about this is, is now when somebody contacts me for information, I have to ask them often if they are a consultant because numerous cannabis consultants contact me trying to just, cause I'm pretty open with quick information. If someone sends me a picture on Instagram, I'll they, they like outsourcing. Like and it. what they'll do is they'll contact me, get milk me for information, and then they'll charge a grower for that information. And so, I mean, it kind of sucks that that's the kind of crap that's going on. But if, if you, wow. as a consultant, have to go ask another consultant, you know, it's one thing when it's a new invasive pest or something new is happening, but you shouldn't have to well, ask for outside help. You have a list. I mean, you've, you've sort of alluded to it. You have a whole list of colleagues, basically, that you talk to about plant pathology and anything else. Oh. Also, but consult, you probably have regional oh. friends and everything else. Mm-hmm. So that's actually normal. You probably trade information for free, yes. right? Probably with all those friends, but they're basically your peers and you, you presume oh. you'll get some interaction from that, right? Yes. Yeah. And and a lot of them are university researchers because the way researchers work now, they don't get to spend a lot of time in the field. And so we bring that information together. And so that's why often at these uh, scientific research meetings, they want me to come in and talk about what I'm seeing in the field, what's going on, what are the needs um, of things that we need to be solved. And then I can help, you know, say, okay, these are the things. And you know, these are possible solutions. Now you go run the trials and, you know, what products should be included. I help with that and things like that. And so we can, we work together as a team and everybody gets smarter and everybody gets better and helps the growers. Um, It's just the takers that don't really contribute and that are not putting in the time. And then taking, try to take advantage of people like you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, so during, during what? Cheers, buddy. All right. Bye James. Cheers. Um, during, during COVID, I did this thing called bugs and buds a lot where I would bring in my expert friends. We'd have discussions, but I would only allow growers in no consultants, no, you know, other people. And people literally lied to me. I found out there was this one company, they were building an educational website where people would pay to take their cannabis classes on growing, including an IPM course. And they were sitting in on all these discussions, collecting all this information that they could just turn around and sell. Yep. America, fuck yeah. They were Canadians, actually. <laughs> Friend of mine, uh, he, it's a pity he's not here. Actually, he could hey. tell you stories. Uh, Farmex, a lot of these guys know who he's who he is. Obviously, it's not. It would be funny if that was his real name, Farmex. Hi, my name is Farmex Jones. But anyway, that's obviously not his name. Uh, Farmex Jones from now, I'm going to call him that from now on. Uh, he's told me, I don't know how many times he's gone to lectures because he was uh, deep in the medical scene here in Oregon. He, he was one of the few guys that you could actually uh, count on to not only be sort of uh, in the trenches uh, uh, dealing with medical patients, but also going to the meetings in our capital, Salem, uh, uh, going to each single legislative meeting just so that there was somebody in the audience who knew cannabis, whatever else. Anyway, the amount of times he's he told me about the amount of times he's seen people go to a conference, a few specific names he told me about, they would go to a conference on 
whatever it is. I mean, I don't know, CBD and the bloodstream or freaking the CB1, CB2 receptor. And somebody like Suzanne would be giving a talk on, I guess, in her uh, field would be entomology, but it could be something else in some other field. They would take notes from that one day or three hour course. And then three weeks later, he would see that person selling that freaking uh, 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 masterclass. Yeah, basically a masterclass with you know, motherfucker Jones, and they're basically literally selling the information that they got secondhand effective, effectively from the expert. It's, 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 it's really something. Yeah. I mean, I used to have customers, I mean, just as a general contractor, I'd have customers that try to pick your brain. So, they, you know, they, they, they try to get the info out of you. So they just turn around and do it themselves. They wouldn't pay you to do it, but not the scale that you're doing it to. I mean, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it happens in every field pretty much whatever they can get away with yeah. it's a shame and i'm not saying it was you know same not the same thing in my my industry that's for sure back then but you know I, the, that's why everything was a paid estimate or a paid consultation or you know they had to pay for something one way or another if i showed up in the house i learned that when i was very young in the early 80s i was like i'm not going because it happened like four or five jobs in, in a year Huge jobs, like I could have, like commercial jobs, like I, I could have got, I could have been. Uh, next thing you know, uh, these management companies were just doing it themselves with their in-house people. Yeah, well, that's what I've been. You know, people have asked me to do um, like an online class, but I'm like, if I did it, people just steal the information and resell it, and and you know, the information is changing pretty rapidly. Um, with, you know, new products, new technologies, you know, we're starting to do, um, I'm actually right now setting up some trials at some of my ornamental growers, um, with the, uh, a product with cinnamic aldehyde in it. And I'm interested for us to look at this for cannabis also. And so we might find out this is a great thing. Oh my gosh, there's a cat, I'm not going to get distracted by the cat. Um, and you can't put cats in front of me and not get me distracted. Um, <laughs> I only have eight cats right now. So, um, but, uh, you know, recommendations again from older stuff can change. And that's the part of making something that's like, I feel like putting stuff online is almost too, too permanent because it is so rapidly changing recommendations and even new pests and things like that. And, you know, it just, it's also almost insulting because there's, there's, um, uh, a cannabis book on the market that is getting a revision. And um, I was asked if I would write the the pest management portion of it. And it's an, the current issue of this, this current, cop, current copy of the book is pretty expensive. It's like $150. And the author doesn't want to pay me to write it. He, uh, it's like, well, I guess they're paying you an exposure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. but now i've got the problem of who's he going to get to write it right. and he's if you get somebody bad then that bad person because honestly there's only i feel a few people that could write it um really would do a, a good service and write that information um there's only a couple of us like Whitney Cranshaw could do it really well for outdoor cannabis he doesn't work as much in protected ag Probably Kelly Vance could, probably Saul Alba and myself. And that's kind of about it um, that I think would be do a good enough job of giving real world solutions um, on that stuff. 
But, you know, you'll get these young whippersnappers who will do this stuff for free to get the exposure. But, you know, you get what you pay for. Yeah. So any way that you could copyright any of it, like, um, you know, just in a, in a, in a I don't want to say pamphlet, but, you know, some kind of text. Well, that's why we're discussing doing a printed book um, because that's kind of slows it down because the mm -hmm. online, if, it's funny, if you just like cut and paste paragraphs from cannabis articles, you can see the game of telephone and how it's just cut and paste through 20 websites, the same information. Um, I mean, and, for what it's worth, by the way, you can embed that metadata and have your copyright, uh, uh, Suzanne Wainwright Evans, basically uh, uh, filed in the, the photo. And you can search online, for example, I don't know, Tinai or something else, basically to, to search online to find those photos and literally sue a few people who steal your photos. And you know, do that I just, to four people. It, it just, and since it happened early on, the photo taking, I just decided as a decision, as a business decision, not to put my images online. Um, now I do have, um, a poster coming out. In fact, I have to send the final revision tonight. It's a, a it's a sticky card poster of what insects will click on sticky cards that we're actually going to have, um, at MJ BizCon. I'm going to be down there giving it out. Um, so I'm kind of excited, um, to be doing that down there. So if you're at MJ BizCon, I'm going to be with the Catchmaster guys, um, handing out the poster because they bought the images from me, but asked me to help design it. And then um, there's like posters. a sticky card of uh, pictures of bugs stuck to the sticky card. That's genius. Mm -hmm. I love it. And what's uh -huh. good and what's bad and what's indifferent. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, so like for that, you know, those images for this use, you know, that's one, but it's a printed poster, but just to start throwing all my images online of a good friend of mine, um, He's not good. He's a friend of mine. Um, he's an insect photographer, uh, Alex Walt. He's an ant photography guy. And he did that. And he spent half his time going after all the pest control companies that stole his images, took off his copyright. And he finally got to the point he had to give up and just put all his images pretty much in the public domain because it was a full-time job with him and his lawyer just trying to chase all these people down. I mean, I guess he could sign with an, well, that's actually something you could do. You could literally sign with an agency because those agencies have uh, their own lawyers that they follow. No, if you steal Getty image, it, you'll find out the same day. If you literally put a Getty images uh, uh, image on your website, literally, even if you don't publish your website yet, you'll still get it pinged. They're quite famous about it. But I guess well, you have Getty, that would be a different thing. Yeah. But the thing with Getty images is like with the insect stuff, like IDs are not, a, not right on some of their photos. And that's everything. Like people will, you know, want to go do the legit thing. And they're like, okay, I'm going to buy this image of Phytocelius persimilis. And I had this happen because I wrote an article on two spotted spider mites for one of the magazines. And I put my images in there, persimilis and two spots. Then I saw the article and they were not my images because they thought the Getty images were better. Too bad. <laughs> that's not what they were though. In the images, they thought it was a persimilis and it was actually an, an anistus mite, which is about five times the size of a persimilis. So it's easy to photograph because it's so big and it's super cool looking. And I'm like, that's not even a persimilis. And they're like, well, but we bought it. I'm like, yeah, but that's not what it is. And that's, 
you know, that's the problem is, is there's not, people are not being detail oriented enough on this stuff because they don't know. And they think it's easy. A lot to of people votes. don't think it matters uh, because they are not in the wheelhouse where it matters. Uh, the NPR had a great story the other day, uh, but I only heard part of it. I was driving to Trader Joe's and I think I actually had a show after that. So I had to hurry up basically. So I pretty much drove to Trader Joe's, sat in the parking lot for a couple of minutes, listening to the story, rushed to Trader Joe's and rushed back so that they'd be finished, you know, wouldn't be finished with the story. And they were still talking about it. Uh, they were talking about through this whole longer story that I missed most of how uh, they were bird watchers or birders or whatever you call it. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but in being bird watchers, this entire community of people, basically, uh, uh, they learn the bird songs because apparently you, you hear the bird song dramatically before you ever see the bird. Evidently, that's that they were talking about that, which makes sense, I suppose. If it's a rare bird, you'd hear the bird before you actually finally see it. That would be the one of the ways that you know that the bird is there. So they get to know these bird songs intimately. And the bird watching community, as a result, knows all the birds for pretty much everywhere because they they try to keep an ear out literally for uh, of all the birds that might be anywhere and so how do i say this they want to know if what they're listening for is something that they're looking for or if it's let's say an invasion uh, invasive fucking floridian crow or whatever i don't know if that exists uh but anyway they were talking about how in movies none of the bird song is ever right and it's so compul it's compulsively wrong. So it'll be like, it'll be a European movie. It'll be a French movie. And the sounds will be like from bald eagles and it'll be like bald <laughs> eagles, but they're using like European swallow songs or some shit. Cause the directors think that that sounds better yes. <laughs> you know? or the editor is basically just going through like, Oh fuck, I need some bird song <laughs> instead of calling a, 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 what do you call it? Oh my God. What's a bird person? Well, anyway, <laughs> Uh, uh, Charlie Day from uh, uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But anyway, it, instead of calling a bird expert, they just look in the Final Cut Pro or whatever for bird yeah. song. They just put in random shit. Yeah, anyway. I, I, because of my plant background, because again, you know, getting a tree in horticulture, like when I, um, when I took insect ID, we had 150 plants on our final we had to identify. So, especially tropical stuff, I'm decent at doing that. And it is painful to me oh my god when i watched outlander and they were saying oh this is this plant i'm like no it's not <laughs> and it makes me crazy and on bones when like they they had a whole episode on bones about fungus gnats i'm like no those aren't fungus gnats and um the bird thing though i really know it's interesting i was telling my husband that because we've lived here now 20 years and i spend a lot of time outside i can go outside and close my eyes and just I can't tell you all the bird songs, but by the bird sounds I hear, I can tell you what season it is because I can still the distinct seasonal differences of the birds we have around and their songs different between spring, summer and fall because the bird song change. And the same thing, too, with crickets and katydids and all that. I can tell seasonally if I close my eyes and I didn't know when it was, I can tell you what time of the year it is by the, the songs I hear in my yard. Can you tell the temperature with the crickets yet? You know, I did that when I was a kid, but I have not done it as an adult. And I don't know if it's actually true or not. <laughs> but I've never really, I don't want to burst my they, bubble. They, they make their sounds faster or slower depending on the temperature. Yeah, I think. Friends who said they could do that. but Yeah, yeah and it might be just a particular species of cricket. I don't know. Yeah. So. Uh, martial artists for the longest time ago asked a question that was actually a nice question. Martial artist, he says, if it's not too late, can you ask Suzanne if she has information about the invasive Asian worms in the Northeast? The Asian jumping worms that the cannabis grower wanted to buy to use at his facility. Hmm. Very same. I mean, 
I mean, I'm I'm not a worm analyst specialist by any means, except for Heidi Klum's Halloween costume was kick-ass last night, being a giant earthworm. If you haven't seen it, Google it. Um, have you not seen her Halloween costume from last yeah, night? I have to say, I, I don't follow Heidi Klum's Halloween costumes. Maybe I should. Yeah, well, you need uh, to for this I'm year. Still, no, Dee and I are in the same place with the Asian jumping worms. Like, I keep thinking that they come from that uh, uh, Beijing circus place where Jackie Chan is. Circus in town. Yeah, yeah, circus worms. <laughs> okay uh heidi klum uh i was still focused focused on like circus worms <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know a ton about them i just know they're bad and we don't want them because we don't need any more earthworm problems oh, in this yeah, neck of the woods really have the oh wow i mean heidi klum is one of those people who you think actually like yeah she knows how to spend money you mm-hmm. know like, there's some rich people here like that person's not happy but no this i feel like she knows how to spend money yeah, well, that's when she was laying true. down. Her <laughs> husband went as a fisherman with a fishing pole. Oh and my. he was, yeah, oh you my. have to see her upright. Um, that's just epically good. Yeah. Yeah, there's pictures of her standing. Quite, yeah, she knows yeah. the costume yeah. designers and all the different guests. Yeah. I mean, it's just good. good. Yeah, she's on America's Got Talent for the judges, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't care about anything else. It's just every year I always look at her Halloween costume because she really goes all out. Yeah. Oh, wait, but her husband was like a zombie fisherman. Okay. A zombie fisherman. Yeah. You always have so. to be. I mean, Dee knows you always have to be a zombie. So, mm-hmm. all right, there's a better picture right there. That's pretty fucking funny. Yeah, she looks like she has a beak in the face. Yeah. I mean, that is, how do you beat that? <laughs> You and I are still in the circus worms, though. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, well, if you want to learn more about the the Asian jumping worms, just Google it, and it's just it's just one more invasive problem on top of spotted lanternflies, Japanese beetle, you know, brown barbated stink bug, you know, elm zigzag sawfly. I mean, the list just keeps growing of invasives. So there is apparently a such thing as a worm circus. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there is. There are there are apparently these worm circuses. So. <laughs> but on that note, I think I am going to because it's one fifteen, and I told myself yeah, I was only going to stay two pleasure. hours. It's been a joy. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming yeah, by. Thank you. Your website, yeah, great. absolutely. Guys. Well, and hopefully, maybe I'll see some of you guys at MJ Biz um, in Vegas. But if not, uh, see there you go. Mm-hmm. There's the cricket temperature. If not, maybe we'll see you at Jeems and Wendy's um, event in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. If not, somewhere else around. Right on. Uh, here's your website right here, ladies and gentlemen, bugladyconsulting.com. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Uh, for, uh, I did just, by. I'm working on updating my calendar of up my upcoming speakers. I'm coming out to, um, speaking in February, I think in Denver, um, I'll be in Fort Lauderdale speaking, I think in January, I still got to get my title in there. Um, but I'm slowly adding stuff in there. Um, and then I've got articles in there and I still actually, I need to get more articles updated in there. Yeah, fantastic. So, yeah. Cheers, Bug Lady. Much appreciated for coming on. Thank you very much. Have a great You're evening. You're welcome. Thanks. Have a good night. Thank you. Cheers. Later, Bug Lady. Well, that was a great, delightful, great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Bug Lady Consulting. She should have mic. She should have dropped the mic. Too bad. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, just dropped the mic. <laughs> Like, I'm from Matt. Yeah, she goes, I'm from Matt Houston, right? I'm
Taught love, you keep it peaceful and equal. I'm used to wars, love, hard love. I'm used to trauma, used to drama. Got a list of bad exes, plus I got a baby mama. Them still, you keep it solid. Them put that on my mama. Them way you build me up, you probably add an extra comma. Them accommodation, destination, running to a flight. We ain't never coming back. I hope you didn't pack like God damn. You all on me, loving all on me, touching all on me, fucking all on me. Girl, be honest. 30,000 feet and we can leave the world behind us. Cause you keep it raw, I'ma hit it with no bottom. I'ma hit you with my soul, I'ma hit you with these goals. You should probably leave your phone, ain't no service where we go. But you can't be iffy, iffy, baby, tell me where you at. You can choose the destination, put your finger on the map. Mm-hmm. We should run away to a brighter day. Like a bag, cop a couple tickets, hopping on the plane. Hit a different country with each other, change your last name. Tell me, is you waiting? Cause I'm waiting, Why don't you feel the same? Down, down.